What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Good evening. You are listening to a Rattleagem Broadcasting Premier Podcast TV party tonight. I'm your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And tonight, we're finally getting to one of our favorite shows, The Boys. Yes, The Boys, brought to you by the good people at Amazon Prime, and so on and so forth. Um, Sony Pictures Television, Amazon Studios, Kripke Enterprises, Point Grey Pictures, Original Film, Jesus Christ, Kickstart Entertainment, and KFL Night Sky Productions. Uh, joining me to discuss season two this evening, I am joined by the essential Jesse Starcher. How do you do, sir? Ah, uh, Mark Radlich, I am popping open a fresca right now and ready to enjoy our discussion about this second season of The Boys. You know what's hilarious about this? So last Tell year, um, we didn't get to The Boys until really late because. Um, I had assumed that it was gonna like be an eight to eight to ten week thing that you know one week, uh, one show per week, over the course of two months or so, mm-hmm. and they dumped all the episodes out on one day, so it was like months before we got to the boy season one. And I was like, God damn it! I'm usually better at that than this. This year, I was prepared for that. This past year, I was prepared when they announced the boy season two. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go for the following. Oh Jesus! They only released one episode. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> and then they um and and then uh it ended in October. Um and at the time I think when I was doing my schedule for it, there was stuff on the calendar. <laughs> and so like, oh, well we're never going to get to it until November. Oh, well there's stuff on the calendar in November too, so we won't be able to get to this until like January. And then all the stuff disappeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had this watched probably within a week. Uh, after it dropped, uh, well, I should say after completed, uh, because they were doing just like you said, it was month or it was episode by episode this go round, and uh, I don't, I think I waited until the the final episode aired, and that day we went in and binged the whole season. Uh, so, but yeah, I 
I had to I had to rewatch it to get prepared for this. So I, I totally understand what you're saying there because I was like, well, I watched it and now I got to watch it again because we're doing it so late, which is perfectly fine with me because I love this. Uh, I love this season. Yeah, this and the Umbrella Academy, I can't seem to get right. Like close to when anywhere close to when they the the, the show finishes airing. Yeah. <laughs> all right, and the uh, the man who has to put up with all of my schedule woes, uh, such as this one, uh, a man who is so anxious about not having any damn you Hollywoods to do because hey, the end of movies in actual theaters, right? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the coverage god. Of 411mania.com, Robert Winfrey. How do you do, sir? I can no longer lay claim to godhood as it pertains to coverage. I have sadly. 900 things that you cover right now. No, I have three. (laughs) It's a long way from 900. (laughs) Uh, I sadly. I regretfully have not been able to pick up the slack around uh, impact on a regular basis. So they're looking for somebody else to do that now. And yeah, no, I can't, can't say it anymore. They asked well, me to do something and I couldn't. So I am no longer a God. What's, mm-hmm. what's the, what's the next level below Godhood then? Demigod. I don't know. He's okay. the, you're the Chris He's Jericho. <laughs> <laughs> the Chris Jericho of coverage. There you go. There's your new nickname. I, I am not that fat. <laughs> I might act. I might technically weigh more than Chris Jericho. I am not as fat as Chris Jericho. I mean, really, who is fat as fat as Chris Jericho? Nobody. He has his own orbit. Um, I exaggerate. That, that, that is not. Yeah, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, in review, Jesse, did we talk about season one together, or did I have somebody else on for the first? No, season I'm of the pretty boys? sure I joined you for season one. Okay. Um, and I know that you talked about the first trade with Gavin. Um, yep. Robert, uh, did you ever read the comic? Um, you know, no. no. Okay. What as you're uh, fond of as you're fond of saying, Mark, comic books are for burning. <laughs> <laughs> well done, and, and hey, that's my racket. Um, Check out source material on Mondays, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> the first season. When did you watch it? How were for, what were you familiar with the boys? What made you decide to watch this, or was this something that I dragged you kicking and screaming into? I was not part of any of the reviews for it that I recall. Uh, there's people involved that I like, and as uh, some of the other, you know, as some other people that I know talked about it and enjoyed it, when I found out that the original material was done by uh, Garth Ennis, Gareth Ennis, I can never remember which Garth. Whether, which of those. Garth, thank you. I figured, you know what. Let's let's give it a try. You know, if, at worst, I bail on it after a couple of episodes if it's not great. And the fact that the people, you know, I've I like Carl Urban as a general rule, and he was great. I he was better even this season than the first season, but that's a different discussion we can save for later. I uh, I liked the world that they created. I liked that. Uh, this is one of the very few shows that is able to simultaneously be preachy and not preachy, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. They It, it roundly and routinely uh, mocks real-world incidents and real-world issues, but in such a way that it's... 
I don't know, again, it never comes across as holier than thou, which is a major problem I have with a lot of other uh, you know, IPs or properties that try to, hey, let's shoehorn in, you know, a Me Too bit. Like, no, now you're just, you're shoehorning it in there. In this instance, in the first episode of season one, when <laughs> the Deep coerces poor Starlight... Mm. In a scene that gave me flashbacks to when I first podcasted with Mark. <laughs> uh, I kid. He, I, I'm sure Mark did not have pants on. <laughs> I'm Boy, sure if I had a nickel for everyone who blew me in order to get on this network, go on. <laughs> You'd have one shiny nickel, I know. <laughs> I have one nickel. <laughs> I'm not even telling you who did it. Uh, it... it it wound up being true enough to both the not just the character of the deep, but the entire uh, the entire fictionalized world that they created. That it didn't come, you know, it, most network or serialized television, the writers will get together and oh, such and such is happening in the world, so we shoehorn that in. The good ones can find a way to do it in a way that works, that kind of makes sense for the sake of the story. Uh, I mean. A, a decent, not great, but a decent example of that would be the uh, the scene where Bullseye massacres the daily uh, the, the whatever the publication is in Daredevil season 3. I almost said the Daily Bugle, but I know that's not it. Uh, but And that being a callback to this is what, by the time the season aired it was an older reference, of course, but uh, to the massacre at the uh, Charlie Hebdo uh places in France, you know, the place that got shot up by a bunch of extremists because they published a, a Muhammad cartoon. Oh, yeah. So, and again, it's a very obvious reference when you're, you know, somewhat literate and aware of what's going on in the world. But at the same time, they already had, you know, uh, they didn't shoehorn it in like, hey, how about he just goes and, you know, massacres a bunch of journalists because, you know, Journalist, it. You know, we already have established this journalistic entity and the relationship it has to the characters, so it could kind of make sense. Here, they do a great job of creating a world where they can kind of talk about real-world issues in these blown-up ways and appropriately satirize all sides of them. So, kudos. This is the cl- the boys is the closest we're ever going to get to a decent contemporary Watchmen adaptation. I'm convinced. Because to adapt, and I say that for a very specific reason, Alan Moore deliberately deconstructed the written superhero genre with Watchmen and did a brilliant job with it. Part of the problem with Snyder's adaptation wasn't so much that it carried some of Snyder's idiosyncrasies. It was released, I think, only a year or so after the after the first Iron Man movie. So the entire comic genre in film medium hadn't been reconstructed. And you have to, for something to be appropriately deconstructed, it does have to either be constructed or reconstructed, and it wasn't. Plus, this entire—I mean, this season in particular—is one of the better ways you could potentially hold up the same kind of mirror that uh, that Watchmen did, because they actually spent part of this television show shooting their equivalent of the Avengers movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so the first season deals with the recruitment of Huey into the boys. Um, We are introduced to Butcher's sort of single-minded 
revenge ploy to take down Homelander and the Seven. Uh, he is conne- he he's shown to be connected to the CIA, but um, unlike in the comic, he is not directly working for the CIA. He um, it, the way that it's pitched, Jesse, if I remember correctly, is that he's it's, he's basically he sees be- because of what Homelander did to his wife, he sees superheroes and Homelander in particular and the Seven. Um, to a large degree, as dangerous and needing to be taken down a peg, and that yeah. is the point of the boys. Um, in the comic book, they're actually they're actually working for the CIA, a sort of a um, a bulwark against superheroes, so they don't get out of control. In any case, um, same as in the comic, Hugh, Huey's girlfriend, uh, fiance, is murdered accidentally by a train. And uh, that is what sets him on the path of joining the boys. By the end of season one, Homelander uh, takes Butcher to um, see his wife, his uh, ex-wife, wife, whatever situation that they're in. Wife. They, wife. Are, they are technically still married. Um, and as it turns out that after having been raped by Homelander, she ended up having a child, uh, his child. And so the big reveal is that she's alive, she's well, she has this son, Homelander's son, and they are more or less in hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is where we leave Butcher at the end of season two. The rest of the boys are wanted fugitives and are in hiding, and that is where we pick up their story. The overall arc of season two, um, we are introduced to Stormfront, who... Initially, she's uh, a replacement for the Deep in the Seven. She has electrical storm power. She flies, uh, whatever. And she starts out as having sort of an adversarial relationship with Homelander. Over the course of the season, she, uh, her, her and Homelander develop a relationship. They start to become cozy together. She starts kind of manipulating him. Um... And as it turns out, she's a Nazi. <laughs> Spoiler: literal Nazi. <laughs> literal yeah. Nazi. She's yeah. actually like a hundred years not, old. Not even, yeah, not even neo-Nazi. Was in fact born in Berlin in like I think she said 1920, and, uh, and married the German scientist who uh, whose last name was Vought, who founded went on to found the company that uh, now bears his name and is responsible for all of the superheroes oh. and whatnot. Yeah, like and compound so she, B. So she's hatching a plot. So, I mean, in, in the first season, they talked about wanting to get the, the Seven as an ancillary part of the military. And so there's the scene, and this comes to, into play in the second season, there's the scene where uh, Homelander lets a plane crash, and it's, um, it's sort of a, a, an excuse to say, look, see, this wouldn't have happened if superheroes were in the military... Oh, sorry. It's not the plane crash. It's the um, they gave Compound V to somebody from the Middle no, no, East. No, no, it was the it was the military. It, it was the airplane. Like th- okay. that was kind of the setup. Was they showed up because her- terrorists had hijacked the plane. Right. They show up at Homelander, being the overzealous. Uh, how is it, John Carlo? <laughs> John Carlo Esposito describes him, uh, petulant man-child that you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, overzealously uses his eye beams and kills the pilot. Now, neither he nor Maeve, who is with him at the time, actually know how to fly a plane, and Homelander decides, we're getting out of here, and because we can't save them anymore. Right. And it's better for them all to die, and people think that, you know, we could have prevented this than for us to have revealed our incompetence. <laughs> and I think the secondary to that, though, is they he gets Compound V, it's found out after to a foreigner, a Middle Easterner, who then becomes, quote-unquote, a supervillain, and they go and they stop him, and then the argument is, see, this is why you need superheroes in the army. Yeah. yeah. So season two continues with that line of logic. Uh, more specifically, you have Stormfront, who's like, we need to give Compound V to lots of people and only the right people, code that's code for Caucasian folk, <laughs> so that yeah. we can, you know, so that we can create a new master race of super uh, of super people. So that's kind of her plot, and Homelander uh, more or less goes along with it. He, for the most part of the season, is distracted by wanting to um, get his son to access his superpowers and sort of involve himself in that relationship, and that also gets tangled up with uh, with Stormfront. So that's part of season two. Um, let me stop there. So, Jesse. Yeah. So, red, the Red Letter Media guys are very fond of calling this the Homelander show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is certainly a big presence in the show. Um, and, I, and I think they gave him even more in season two to do than they did in season one. What did you think of Homelander in season two and his various plot lines? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a... <sighs> clearly he's the face of the seven you know this is the this is the superman of that universe and he is just completely mentally unstable uh, the i guess it is probably a, an apt description to kind of call it the homelander show because you're you learn a lot about this character uh the way he was raised and what he's trying to do even though a lot of times what he does he may think is in the best interest usually it's in the best interest of himself uh but he just doesn't know how to go about especially with his son how to be a father and that's a lot of what this is about he finds out he has a son or he's known he's had his son and he's decided he wants to try to become a father to this kid and he does you know all the all the wrong ways uh <laughs> and there i think obviously there's a struggle between him and becca becca who is intent on being a mom and the only reason billy butcher is still alive is the fact that she told homelander if you kill him i will kill myself in front of my son and tell him it was your fault homelander's fault uh so that's the only reason with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Billy Butcher is still around. So he has this struggle with Becca throughout most of the season until finally Stormfront shows up and it's almost like he immediately sees, oh, okay, now I can provide a mother figure for this kid and kind of tries to muscle her out. Uh, I mean, on top of that, he has everything going on with the Seven. He has Queen Maeve that he has to worry about later on down the line with her reveal, uh, what she found out from the plane. And, I mean, it's... uh, (sighs) The way this show is, I binged it the past two days. I just, well, I say binged it. I had it on, and I was working and kind of checking on it every once in a while. So I I sat through eight episodes in the past two days. And all these little things that are in there that satirize was a great word of what we see in real life. And my goodness, I know we'll get to touch it on that. But uh, Anthony Starr as Homelander, oh my goodness, I mean... He's a fantastic actor, in my opinion. He does a great job as this out-of-control superhero. So, um, you know, he's got a lot on his plate. And, yes, he's in every episode. But, I mean, yeah, this is this is kind of his show right now. And I, I didn't mind it at all. You know, thematically, Winfrey, Homelander is searching for that family that he didn't have. Uh, John Doman, his father... Um, you know, talks about how he was specifically very hard on Homelander because he, you know, needed to prepare him for the world. And, you know, that was all done purposefully, but it messed him up. You know, we saw that a lot in season one with his relationship with Elizabeth Shue. And in the absence of Elizabeth Shue, you know, his goal now is to sort of construct sort of an artificial family with Becca and his son, but he doesn't have any of the tools to really be a part of any kind of a family. Um, And that's what makes his relationship with Stormfront so interesting is that, you know, she is this horrible nutcase and they work really well together because he's such a broken character. Uh, I'm going to gush because I can. (laughs) I I love Homelander. I, I look, I'm a guy who used to have a podcast called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. And that ran for a while before. Some things in my personal life kind of reared their ugly head, and I just stopped. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to get into it. it. That's a much longer conversation. I used to do it. You, I. I was, you did it until it was time to stop doing it. Move on. Pretty much. Pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. Uh, I am still fascinated by again villains and what they mean to storytelling. Homelander is such a genuinely wonderful villain. Because he is unrepentantly evil. And I don't mean that in the mustache twirly way. You know, there, there's different kinds of kind of irredeemable evil. Homelander is not, you know, Mr. Burns saying he just wants to kind of revel in his own crapulence. 
but he's so far beyond, uh, you know, he's so far beyond broken and understandable in in so many ways that there's no there's no coming back for that guy. He's just out there, evil villain. And can I can I is... add something to this because and and I and I want you to continue your your line of thought, but you need to know that everything you need to know about Homelander is summed up in the very final scene of the very f- last episode of season two. Him pantsless in the night sky, jerking off, yelling, "I can do anything that I want." Yeah, that that scene was apparently originally shot for season one, but they thought it fit better in season two, so they saved it. <laughs> it's so good. It is. It really is. Uh, and what season two, even more so than season one, season one did a good job at times in showing you, you know, Homelander wasn't, no one is born the way he is. It takes, you know, your experiences make you, uh, as much as biology does. And he's... And so the first season, when they talk about, you know, he has this manufactured background of, you know, that is essentially a, rip, a knockoff of Clark Kent and Superman. The con- And then when you find out the truth that he was, you know, uh, an artificial, essentially an artificial construct who was raised by dispassionate scientists who were all terrified of him and so kept not only physical distance, but emotional distance... It becomes very clear how he became as damaged as he is. And that doesn't make him uh, sympathetic in the sense that you root for him, but it does make him sympathetic in the sense that you look at his problems, somewhat absent of his superpowers. If you look at his psychological problems, you go, oh, yeah, anyone under those circumstances would have, at the base, those same kind of issues. And here, when we get into season two, those that fundamental lack of belonging uh, continues to continues to grow, and his his deep seated desire to connect with other people on some kind of level, and it's it, it, and what makes it work is that it's genuine to the character. He wants to feel human connection and love with uh, he he does he genuinely wants to feel that he doesn't know how to do it he is woefully both emotionally and just purely like logistically and skill wise unprepared to engage in any of those activities and his worldview is so profoundly warped that he is almost incapable of doing it But he's not doing it to feed his... You know, there's things that he does to fuel his ego, purely to to fuel his ego. His desire to connect with other people in some kind of meaningful way comes from a genuine place, which, again, is kind of what makes it work. I mean, when you see him trying to be a father to his son, he's doing it all wrong. (laughs) Like, there's not really an argument about the efficacy here. You want your son to fly, okay. You don't shove him off the roof. You go down onto the ground and say, it's okay, I'll catch you. Go ahead and jump. But he doesn't know how to do that. He's, again, he doesn't have anything approximating either experiences or learned skills to deal with this. Yeah, he is very but, personality disordered. Uh, yeah. Massively. But, that all, but, again, the nice thing about that is 
it's also very apparent that he's making a genuine effort. Screwed yeah. up. Destined to fail for any number of reasons. But he's not putting on he's not doing it for the camera. He's doing it because this is something that he feels in his heart he wants and needs to do. Which makes it all the more tragic that he is so utterly incapable of doing so. Yeah, with any other, like, villain in the same situation, uh, with any other show, what you may expect is that, okay, Homelander's got a kid. You know, at the end of this arc, what's going to happen is he's going to do what's best for the kid. That's what's going to happen. No, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) It does not. And that's what makes this show unique and Homelander unique as well, is that no matter what, he is a villain. He's He's been messed up in the head for a while, and he just doesn't know how to do things right, even though he may want to. Um, it's just not part of his makeup. Uh, so, so, his... Something that came up a lot last night when we talked about The Boys Volume 2 Get Some was how, and, and you mentioned it as well, is that, is that The Boys is a deconstruction of the superhero genre, um, which your mileage may vary of how much you appreciate that kind of thing. What I like about it is, and what I like about Homelander specifically, it's why I wanted to bring this up now, is Homelander is an analog for Superman. But Superman, the character, as he's written under, you know, in most circumstances, is he was raised with Midwest, Midwest American values. Um, depending on which era of Superman you're looking at, let's look at, like, you know, Silver Age Superman. He grows up in like mid 20th century Midwest after having land on Earth, landed on Earth. Um, and so, thank God, because otherwise, who knows how the hell he would have <laughs> developed. <Yeah. laughs> but he has like True. good old fashioned Midwestern American parents who gave him, you know, a good moral compass. And so he has the powers of a god, but he is te- in many ways tempered. Because of how he was raised. And the movies, to a degree, and I think some of the cartoons, you know, have played around with that. You know, the idea of, I'm not, you know, I may have been born on Krypton, but I'm from Kansas. And that informs a lot of his character. There's a a reason Superman always says that. Right. You know, it's actually one of my favorite lines from Man of Steel, right near the end after he knocks that drone out of the sky and confronts the military personnel again and goes, you know... I know you're trying to figure out where I hang my cape, and I'd really appreciate it if you didn't. (laughs) You're a potential huge security threat. We need to, you know, we're just trying to keep tabs on you. Like, General, I'm from Kansas. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That might have been actually what I was thinking of when I said that. But um, in any case, so Homelander, you know, is sort of an Elseworlds version of Superman, and, and DC has actually played around with that in Elseworlds. Uh, versions of Superman. There's the Superman that was born in Gotham. There's the Superman that was born in the Soviet Union, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, this is a Superman that you know that hap- that is born in a lab and raised by dispassionate scientists and becomes utterly personality disordered and sociopathic. And yeah, I mean, he was he was raised, that, he was not happen. Yeah, he was not raised by humans. He was raised by a corporation. Right. That's yeah. that's the big you know your big difference there. Um, and uh, last thing on this, sure. Anthony Starr, I mean, his ability to turn, uh, to go from 
Uh, I mean, there's a very early example of this in the season when he's introduced to their daredevil analog. I forget what they called the character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he puts on the first time he meets him, he's he's put on the corporate face, right? He's put he, he's got his mask on. He's performing. Well, you know, you're a, you're a hero not because of your abilities, but because of what you've overcome and what you've shown other people like you that you can do. And it's all the it, it's the corporate byline. It's the that load of crap. All the right things. And then on just like snap your fingers, he boxes his ears, deafens the guy, and goes. And if I do that, you're just another useless blind guy. And then, he, as he turns to that poor intern maid, uh, <laughs> Ashley. Ashley, yeah. His. Uh, entire demeanor has shifted to one of utter menace homeland and look this is one of the things about making superman scary superman is terrifying because you know he can do anything right that what keeps and the only thing that keeps superman in the comics from being terrifying is we know his character uh i mean the you know not just the fictional character but the character of the person but a villainous Superman is horrifying because, you know, what do you do? I mean, the entire, that was the entire, like, question about the Injustice universe, right? What do you do if Superman goes bad? And the only thing they could come up with was tear a hole in reality, go to another universe. <laughs> and get another get Superman. Their super, get their <laughs> Superman to stop our Superman. Right. Yep. So, uh, but you can't have him... For both budgetary reasons and uh, because of the law, you know, the law of diminishing returns, he can't do anything all the time on screen. Again, it desensitizes the audience to it, and it costs money. So you need an actor who can convey that menace and let just the intellectual, because we do see him do horrible things. You let that sit in the back of your head, and then you just let the performance of the actor reinforce all of that. And Anthony Starr just, I mean, absolute, uh, absolutely phenomenal performance as this character. He, he switches back and forth between public performance face and what he's really thinking. And he even strikes the appropriate emotional chord when, you know, when he's sitting there talking with his son about how he was raised. Or, you know, when he talks with Becca, actually, there's that, uh, after he's brought Stormfront by, he talks with Becca and says, you know, I, uh, and she's, you know, telling him you need to leave, you need to get out of here. And his response isn't his, nor, you know, it's not his egomaniacal side talking. He does kind of tap into his humanity for a minute when he goes, no, I was raised like this, not exactly like this. You know that 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 implication is very clear, but I was raised in a very controlled setting and lied to my whole life. This will screw him up in ways you can't imagine. He's going to need to know the truth about the world, about you know what the wider world is like, and he's going to and there is and you know again it is somewhat self-serving in that he wants a relationship with his son, maybe genuinely, but also because he wants it. Mm -hmm. But there is truth to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't raise someone in a... You can't raise a kid in a perfectly controlled environment. Uh, it's it, it's damaging. It's right. incredibly damaging. And that's the thing, like, I... And, and last point on this, and then we, we, we gotta move on to another character. I... 
that's the thing. I think with you know with everything that happened with Elizabeth Shue and his father in the first season, I think like he genuinely wants a degree of normalcy. But like I said before, like he doesn't really have the tools to operate in that construct. He's nuts. So it's like I you know like he wants a wife and he wants a child and he wants a family and like you know, and that's the great thing about Anthony Starr's performance is that it's very nuanced at times. Like he's like the the show in and of itself is is over the top and gross at times. But they it, drive it, a speedboat through a whale. They certainly <laughs> so do, Ollie. Great. <laughs> um, it's so great. But I mean, I would tell you one of the major legs of this show is the nuanced performances from the actors. Like you would think it would be very broad, but. As you guys have both talked about, Anthony Starr actually gives a very nuanced and subtle performance at times. And so, like, if you look at some of the uh, scenes where he's just eating a meal with Becca and the kid, he's so happy. They're, she's terrified. She's on pins and needles because essentially it's like living with somebody who beats you. Yeah. But yeah. you never know when this guy's going to... Considering this guy's favorite phrase is, you know, you know do what they say or I'll fucking laser you. <laughs> you know, but he is happy as a clam. He just when like he, you don't know how to. But when you when you have the powers of a god and no moral compass, you don't know how to behave. You don't know how to act. You don't know how to interact with people. When he sits down, uh, when he sits down to talk with his son, to talk with Ryan after this is after they go out to the restaurant and it you know, ends horribly because he winds up performing for the people who recognize him because he is the most famous person in the world and his son freaks out because he's never been in a crowded room before when they get back together and he's like yeah you know I get it first time I was in a and he says you know you you want to know what happened the first time I was in a crowded room and that was probably nothing for you he's like no I freaked out and they found me, you know, eight miles away, bawling my eyes out. It's, it, I mean, it's true. He's not putting this on for anyone. He's genuinely making a good faith effort. He's just too messed up for it to mean anything in the long run. But he's, uh, Homelander, in addition to being a great, you know, when he goes crazy to being just a great maniacal villain... Anthony Starr does a tremendous job of tapping into the tragedy of this character. Mm-hmm. This guy never had a chance. So and that much... doesn't make him... Last thing. That doesn't make him less of a villain. It doesn't make you root for him. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Because it's in... 
and this is one of the things not to dovetail too hard. I was very concerned about one of the uh, Candyman trailers I saw because I'm worried that they will try to make Candyman more sympathetic. And it's okay for your villain to be a victim. They just still have to be a villain. And that's what Homelander is. He's he is absolutely a victim of circumstances beyond his control. He is a monster that needs to be stopped in some kind of permanent way. But he is also a victim of circumstances well beyond his control. Um, I'm going to say the last thing on here. I'm going to have the last word on Homelander, and then we're going to talk about Billy Butcher for a little bit. Um, the conclusion to the season two arc, which is really the conclusion to a two-season-long storyline, because um, season three has got to go in a completely different direction now. They kind of I, know where I else to go. <laughs> I can't wait for Homelander to snap. They have... This show has very wonderfully set that up. He has systematically lost the handful of things he genuinely cares about. You've taken his... His ego is both massive and unbelievably fragile. You've attacked both of those things. Everyone that he thought actually cared about him has turned out not to. And to be abundantly clear, there's a plethora of reasons not to want a close relationship with this man. It's perilous to your life but when he snaps when he finally goes full when he finally you know does the full on heel turn oh yeah I can't wait man that is gonna be so good (laughs) what Maeve says to him in the in the final episode of season two you know he he's about to kill uh Billy I I think he's gonna kill the kid too um and she comes up to him she says you're gonna let him leave and here's why you know, I'm going to release this to the world and nobody will ever love you again. And to a guy with the powers of a god who's invulnerable, the idea that nobody will ever love him, that he will lose the adulation of people across the world, is a death well, blow. Well, that's also all he's got left at this point. You know, he right. tried to have, he, you know, had some very damaged and very uh, disturbing relationship with, Elig- with Elizabeth Shue. He finally gets a physical connection with uh, Stormfront, who, you know, winds up being a... <laughs> Laser my tits, you pussy! I'll tell you, there's some great I, lines in this. <laughs> there are. Uh, he has a physical relationship with her that winds up going all wrong because of, you know, her issues colliding with his issues, colliding with her being uh, nuked, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> we can get into that. I imagine we'll get into that later. And you've now got him to the point where all he has in terms of something he can even remotely convince himself is love is other people is other strangers cheering his name. Yeah. You have tethered this guy to reality by the barest of threads at this point. And it's going to be so great when he, when he finally snaps. So as we said, the end of season two is, is Billy finding out that Becca is alive and well and has a kid and the next thing we know, Palmlander has dropped him off somewhere uh, <laughs> out far beyond. <laughs> um, That's so much. So Billy's whole thing has been, I want to get even with Homelander in the soups because of what Homelander did to my wife. And now in part two uh, of, of this two-season arc is 
I want to get my wife back and I want to leave. Like, it, it's a very different Billy Butcher than in the comic books. In the comic books, he has a much he has a much broader agenda. You know, he sees the general nature of superheroes um, being uh, confrontational and uh, dangerous. And so he and so he sees himself, as I said before, as a bulwark against that. And there is he isn't so much guided by single minded revenge. The Billy Butcher on this show, Jesse, is very much like sing, like to the point that I don't particularly I didn't particularly enjoy the character this season. All he gave a shit about was this woman. Mm, didn't give yeah. a shit about the kid. Didn't give a shit about the boys. Yep. Didn't give a shit about the larger issue in play. The world could have burned, but if he could have gotten on a rocket ship with Becca and gone to Mars, he would have. And it did not it did not make for the most interesting of characters. I really feel like they underwrote him this season. Like it's not a bad show, and Carl Urban, I think, does a best does the best job with the material he's given. But I don't like the fact that they stripped away the way he's presented in the comic books and just made him Becca, 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 Becca. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think he's got like two major arcs really in this season. And that is obviously, just like you said, he's trying to get Becca back. And the other is the arc between him and Huey. Um, Huey being his canary, uh, as we find out in the episodes. But I think that probably the most interesting that that story arc between him about him and Becca got was when he found out that Ryan Becca's child was a superhero and out uh, uh, his his initial thought is like okay look I want to get you back not to mention he has to go through a lot to just try and get Becca back but now she has a son. She's raised a son. She's obviously attached to the son. She's not just going to give up her son that she's raised and loved for the past. Well, how old is this kid? Seven or eight years, 10 or something like that. But that, that obviously comes into conflict with Billy's main intent, getting his wife back. And now she has a son. He doesn't even, just like you said, doesn't care about the kid. And goes to the point where he makes a deal with uh, oh my goodness it's I can't remember his first name uh, Edgar Esposito yeah yeah Edgar. It, it, uh, Mr. Edgar makes a deal with Mr. Edgar and says okay look you can have the kid because this kid's special folks this kid is like the first human born or the first natural first natural born. born superhero first natural born superhero in a world dirty stinking of... muty as Pat would say <laughs> in I mean... a world of manufactured heroes um, um, look, he's got a he's got a great line to Becca at one point when they're trying to when he's you know, making the pitch for them to leave, and you know, she's like, "No, I I can't leave my son. You know, we have to go together." And he just kind of sighs and goes, "Look, you and I can start over. That kid is a billion dollar piece of bought property. Yep, and that and that they will not let go. And that's how he views superheroes, and he hates soups to the point that." the kid is not a child to him. It is a piece of property. And that is all that that kid will ever be. Uh, so, of course he's trying to get Becca to realize this, but at, at the end, you know, she's 
begging him, look, you have to, you, you have to take both of us. And he makes the decision at that point. He loves his wife so much that he's not going to go with the, uh, through with the deal with Mr. Edgar. And that leads to our big climax pretty much. Uh, and of course the ending of the final or was second to last episode, or maybe it was the final episode, but, um, where we have Homelander face off with Billy Butcher and Ryan makes the decision <laughs> to go to Billy's side a- after after Billy watched Rebecca die in his arms. Oh, she... my... go ahead. There's that there's that moment and Carl Urban. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know what you're oh. talking about, too, man. He picks up a crowbar and <laughs> yeah. start with just this heartbroken rage towards this child who's and begging. Being... He's saying, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, mommy, I'm sorry." Carl, and, and yeah, you, Billy Butcher, you no know, <laughs> you and I both know, if Homelander doesn't show up right then and distract things, he would have beat that kid to death yeah. if he could with the crowbar. That's right. That is exactly right. You know, it's because funny. Every, everyone references. Everyone references Cobra Kai as this great show that really plays with the idea of what is evil and what is good, who is the bully and who is the hero. But I'll tell you, The Boys is just as good at that. Oh, yeah. You know, you guys are are really tapping into the idea that, you know, Billy Butcher, who's supposed to be, like, the good guy in this, right? You know, he's the guy taking on the soups, and the soups are all crazy evil people. And it's like, no, this guy... In a moment of rage and frustration and hatred and, dare I say, prejudice, nearly killed a child. <laughs> he, he, he would have. I, I have no doubt. De- again, there's no doubt in my mind. And now, look, whether or not he actually could have given... I'm, I'm not even going to get into that. He would have died given the, the, That's not even the... He, no, no, no! Like I, I completely understand what you're what you're getting at there in terms of if it, it, you know, he abs- the fact that this crowbar will probably bounce off of this kid's super head and not leave a mark did not that was not the point. Right. If he could have killed him, he would have. Right. Um, Robert, just r- wrap up for me your thoughts on the Billy Butcher character. I I put out there for consideration that he's underwritten this season and that I think they did they didn't do the best job of presenting this character by making him singularly focused on Becca. Now Jesse's point just to kind of weave that in is that the other thing going on with him is sort of moral wrestling that he does and the recognition that Wee Huey is sort of his moral compass, his, you know, canary as he's as he's called, which I, after a while, just to kind of give my own stance on that point, watching Carl Urban and the guy playing Huey, watching Butcher and Huey um, nag at each other like a husband and wife got old real fast. So, <laughs> I, I, I'd say clearly what they're shooting for is big brother, little brother there. Okay, I'm going to go with husband and wife. Okay. Um, <laughs> Huey, Huey could have been wearing an apron, you know, and you know, and some flats, you know, rattling the pots and pans in the kitchen for all I cared. He, uh, you know, I, I, I like... Here's the thing, and and I and we'll we'll, we'll talk about him in Starlighter next, um, and to a lesser extent, A Train, but I, I want to put out there for you to talk about and give your own opinion on. 
Um, he's underwritten. His relationship with Huey is at best annoying this season, and I liked Huey better when he wasn't around Butcher. Go. Um, I would. I can see where you're coming from with him being a little bit underwritten. That said, I felt they did a pretty decent job of kind of explaining his single-mindedness, and they did it in some overt ways, in some more subtle ways. Um, there's a really nice, and it's a much shorter sequence, but the scene between him and his dad, it throws into very stark relief so much about how he became who he is. And there's a there's also a line from uh, Becca during one of their interludes when they're together before she you know sends him away. She says, you know you you put me on a pedestal. You thought I could save you, and I never knew how to save you. You're always one bad day away from beating somebody to death in the parking lot of a bar. That really and resonated I, with me that line. It's a great line. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, like, not that I'm one bad day away from beating somebody in a parking lot. I'm saying just like that. That had an emotional impact on me. I really like that line. And it, it's able to kind of contextualize some of his single-mindedness in that he views, you know, he he genuinely loves his wife, and just they wind up at a at an impasse when it comes to you know the existence of her son. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he cares about Huey, but he can't really either express that properly, uh, both as a character and apparently as the writing staff. <laughs> uh, we, we, and again, I, I don't think you're entirely incorrect to say that they spend a lot of time nagging each other and not enough time, you know, genuinely bonding. There is some, but I don't think enough. Uh, other actors would have crumpled under the weight of the writing of this character this season. To Carl Urban's eternal credit, the man chews the scenery because that's what he's supposed to do. <laughs> uh, and he does a great job at uh, he does a great job at the subtle stuff too. You know, I shouldn't say he only chews scenery in the broad sense. He does a great job when they give him quiet moments or you know stuff that he has to do with just his face. Uh, there's a lot of that that he does, you know, just physically that, you know, some of the half turns that he does when trying to leave or, you know, when his mother after the after he confronts his father, when he talks to his mother again for, you know, the last time and he's you know fine, you know, ready to leave, you know, tell me when he's dead. And her response is, you know, I didn't I didn't convince you two to meet for him. I did that for you. He's going to die a miserable old bastard. But if you let, but if you never had the chance to at least talk with him one more time, that would have eaten. That would have been just one more thing eating you up inside. <laughs> and he does a great job expressing it. You know, uh, I one of the other things about that I liked that after Becca died, uh, his he didn't. He didn't try to be a dad to the kid. He uh, he knows I'm screwed up. And again, this is one of the nice things about seeing uh, his father and understanding a little bit more about his family life. He knows how screwed up he is. And he's terrified about potentially passing on his damage to, to anyone, 
much less potentially creating another Homelander. So I, I agree with you that he's, again, somewhat underwritten. I just really enjoyed what they did give him to do, and I really enjoyed Carl Urban's performance. He is probably the... I don't know how many times Billy Butcher said the word cunt, but it's probably... <laughs> 1. <laughs> 1.21 million. It is probably the most I've ever heard uttered out of a character's mouth. Uh, so and he delivers it so great too. I don't know why. I was just like, I'll say it again. And he says it at the end with the kid. Actually, no, excuse me. The kid says it to him. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is a great <laughs> like. Like gives the, his kid. The kid yeah, is kind of kumsi kumsa. You know, he's like a, he's a fine child actor. He's perfectly adequate. But I, that last line popped me. He was just like, and remember what I told you, right? Don't be a cunt. <laughs> great. That was good shit. Um. All right, so in the first season, um, A-Train nearly dies, and between Starlighter and Huey, he is revived, and he comes yeah, back you, you, to... Stop, you're, you're going to kill me. It's just Starlight. Star, what, what, do I keep saying Starlighter? I thought it was Starlighter. It's, it's not Starlight? Light, singular, Starlight. Oh, manifestation man. of light across the vast, cold emptiness of space. Okay. Most of which is already millions of years well, old, maybe... if not billions by the time it reaches our eyes. Maybe we're getting it mixed up with Lamplighter. That's what we're probably doing. It was a completely different character. No, I I definitely wasn't. I just thought it was Starlighter. All right, Starlight. Um, Because I want to say Starlighter. I think Starlighter is a better name. But anyway. You um, are the only one who thinks that. Moving on. She doesn't like the stars. She exudes their light. Played by... (laughs) Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> Aaron Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> so glad you're here. Um, Starlight and Huey, Huey uh, revive A-Train when he nearly dies in the first season. Um, to, so there's mu- much of this. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. season deals with Starlight and Huey, and they're you know trying to figure out if they're going to be together. She's mad at him for lying to her in the first season. Um, He's in hiding. They are together in the sense of they both agree that the seven need to be brought down. Um, And so they are working towards that goal. And so the first like four episodes kind of deal with their, in the absence of Billy Butcher, um, they are trying to bring down uh, Vought American and the seven um, you know, 
trying to come up with different ways to get the word out there that, hey, it's an evil company. People need to know. Um, but she's not yet totally forgiven him. They are sort of using one another to get to you know towards this bigger goal. Um, meanwhile, uh, A-Train is having difficulties with his heart, which... Jesse, did you get the... That was a natural phenomenon, right? That, that wasn't a result of Compound V directly. It was by result of his superpower wearing, wearing thin on his body, he's now starting to... Um, he's now starting to have heart problems. That was the impression that I got. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if it was a, a result of too much Compound V at one point because he was taking it there in the first season, right? Like, mm-hmm. he was using... So... I took it as he was having issues because he has taken it so much and he's screwed his body up. So it, it's, I would imagine it's the result of one or the other because if it's the superpowers, well, the superpowers are obviously being given to him from the compound fee that he took before anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, either way, he's got heart problems and the seven are like, uh, well, you're on the decline, buddy. You're out. Right. So he, um, he, he wants to get back into the seven after being ousted. And there's a whole subplot line that weaves into what's going on with the deep, which we'll talk about next. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, like I said, the first half is Huey and Starlight trying to take down Vaught, not necessarily being tremendously successful. And that will eventually weave into a train finding out that Stormfront is a Nazi, decide, you know, and she ends up taking his spot. And so he wants her out of the seven so that he can get back in. And so he sells her out and inevitably ends up helping Starlight and Huey take, um, uh, take down Vaught American by giving them information on Stormfront and her whole history. Um, I like Huey as a character. You know, th- th- there needs to be somebody with a, with a moral center on this show. Um, I thought, uh, I love him and Starlight as a couple. I think they have good chemistry together, you know, that the, the two actors. And I liked him better in season two as he slowly developed a spine, as opposed to season one, where I thought he was a bit, you know, a bit wishy-washy, a bit, every everything is, ah! You know, just his reaction to everything in season one is always like a disgusted surprise. And I feel like in season two, he's less of a puss and, you know, and is sort of guided by does, the mission. The irony being he gets splattered a lot more in season two. Well, <laughs> that, boy, isn't that the show though? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very oh, messy, yeah, it gross show. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite things about this show. And this speaks to Gar- adapting the work of Garth Ennis is tricky because the man deals after a certain point in his career, as well deals almost exclusively in extremes did you watch preacher i meant to ask you that before did, were you a fan of the, the show preacher i didn't watch as much i didn't watch a whole lot of it uh it kind of lost me after a little bit which was a, a shame because i enjoyed I, I enjoyed the acting i really enjoyed dominic cooper jesse uh, did i you forget watch, the name jesse did you watch preacher no i read the first i think 60 issues of preacher though and you, just, you, you got to read the whole thing you have yeah, to go through it's, with it. you have to you have to follow through with the insanity go it's to the something end. yeah it's something that i want to complete uh, and yeah now, garth ennis is, that that book right there for me really put garth ennis on the map even though he'd been around for a while but that was 
first time I ever picked up a book and didn't know what I was getting my hands on. And I was like, oh, wow, this is great. But I heard that the show's not that great. Uh, again, some of the acting is really good. You know, Cooper, the guy they have playing, I forget the names. God, it's been too long. The guy they have playing the Irish vampire, spot on. Just oh, genuinely really? spot on. That's yeah. good. Yeah, that's good. Uh, it, they just like, don't, I don't think they really had a handle on how they wanted to adapt that kind of a sprawling uh, potential story into a television show the way they should have. Well, uh, I guess my, 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 my only experience with Garth and has been the little bit of the Punisher that Jesse and I have done. Um, and then this show and subsequently the book. So I was just curious okay, if Preacher... So you're dealing... Preacher... Here's the thing about Preacher. It is a great, great uh, story. It's a great novel. It is also kind of the point when a lot of people wound up checking out on his work because what came after it is even more extreme. <laughs> and when you consider how nuts Preacher is, that's saying yeah. something. Hey, Jesse, Ma Nucci got the ill communication. That's right. That's right. Were you trying to see if there's a comparison between blood and gore? Yes. Is that what you, is that what you were asking about the show? I, I yes. mean, Winfrey, what do you, what was the show like? Was it gory? Was Preacher gory? Uh, yeah, it was on AMC. So about on par with the walking dead, give or take when it, uh, when it went there. Now, when it comes to the comic, Mark, there is a character by the name of Arseface. Right. I've heard. Okay, all right. So then I more probably don't that, have that. <laughs> more have. than that, there is the entire story of Hairstar. Oh, Hairstar. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean... Now, Mark, <laughs> I, because I know you have seen this, and I know you will get the reference, um, remember everything they put uh, poor Dr. Chilton through in the Hannibal series? Uh-huh. Think that, but turned up to eleven, and that's what Hairstar goes through in the course of Preacher. Oh, now I remember what I meant to ask you. Um, don't don't answer. Wait till the podcast is over. But remind me, I needed to ask you what your thoughts on the Clarice trailer were. I know they weren't good, but I had a follow up to that. Um, okay. And I also okay. needed to follow my, up with my you about the one is not good. <laughs> <laughs> and I also needed to follow up with you about the stand. But anyway, um, okay. moving on. So I, I, I threw out there a lot, um, you know, Huey and basically Huey and Starlight. 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 Jesse. Starlight. Starbright. Starbright. All right. So you queued me up to go on this one? Yeah. I mean, Huey, Huey and Starlight, uh, again, that's the other major arc for Huey, other than him kind of working with uh, Billy and being his canary. Uh, so... I mean, I don't know really a whole lot to say other than I want these two to succeed. And unfortunately, they're in situations that work against them so much. I mean, I can't remember which episode. I know it was more past the middle of the end of the season when they all go on the road trip, which was fun. It was Mother's, Mil Mother Mother's Milk, um, Starlight, and Huey all in a car. And uh, they turn on the radio and... You can see Huey and Starlight are just having a good time singing along with Billy. Was it Billy Joel that was on? Yeah. Because Billy, Billy Joel shows up a lot uh, throughout the season. But uh, Mother's Milk just can't. He's had enough. Well, uh, no, but, but hang on. The song in particular wasn't uh, – it wasn't a Billy Joel, I don't think. It was um, – oh, I think I they were singing – it was We Didn't Start the Fire, right? 
Yeah, that's Billy, that Billy fucking Joel. Okay, that's Billy Joel. <laughs> yes. Either. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray. It's Billy Joel. I okay. I I did not know. Did he perform that too? Because it doesn't sound like him. Fuck me! It's Billy Joel. Okay, okay. I, I believe you. I'm, He's the king of okay. Long Island. Let it go. <laughs> the king of Long Island. <laughs> All right then. Anyway, so you can see that their relationship is, is very strained, but they're, they're trying to make some th- some things work. They end up having a passionate night at that hotel, and then the next day, Starlight's like, look, we can't do this again. So it's a very on-off kind of a deal, uh, even to the point where they Starlight almost kills Huey because Homelander uh, and the rest of the team are closing in on the boys. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are working against them. Uh, but, of course, at the end, no matter what, no matter what, we Huey will not let somebody down especially uh starlight so at the end of the at near the end of the show where she's in prison uh it's i think this is one of my favorite moments between the two is when she's in prison at the tower and all the stuff is going on we huey and lamplighter have broken in there uh and she is able to finally muster up some power and blow the door off and she's trying to go find her mom and she rounds the corner and there is Huey, of all people, in the middle of Vought Tower with her mom by his side. So I think right then and there, she was just, she couldn't believe holding what she was seeing. Severed, holding a severed <laughs> human hand. <laughs> oh, man, was that gruesome. You had to break that thing and then start sawing into it with a glass, bro- some a broken, broken glass. glass bo- oh, that doesn't <laughs> quite work that way. I was wondering about that. Uh, but anyway, it's not impossible. It's just really hard. <laughs> I figure I figure it'd take a little bit more work than what he put into it. Uh, but yeah, you know, I want these two to succeed. And by the end of the by the end of the series, you could tell their relationship is is definitely going the right way after all the stuff. Oh, they have done. such a cute scene where he's like, where he's had sort of a come to Jesus, and he's like, I need to stop being so clingy to people. I need to find a find my own path. And then in the next scene. He asks for a job with the congresswoman, who is clearly a soup that can blow heads up, uh, is the reveal. Um, But when she she has a great little moment there where she's like, oh, he's breaking up with me, you know, and it's a very human moment. It's like, oh, shit. Like, I I have all of this power. I have all you know, I'm I'm first of all, I'm a pretty girl. So I already had power. But I have, you know, but I'm a pretty girl with superpowers, so I even have more power than that. And this little, and I love what Maeve says to him in a in a scene before that, <laughs> where like, I could split him like dry wood. Get this oh, twink, yeah. <laughs> get this twink out of here. <laughs> I Je- Jesse knows just because of this, my stuff with Marco's stunt, and I have brought this up many times talking to the Podsman. When she called him a twink, I laughed even harder considering my recent history with Effie's Big Gay Brunch and all of that and the use of that word. Here I, here I would have thought that what popped you the most and as far as insults directed at Huey, it would have been Lamplighter telling him, you're not the cuck, you're lower, you're the cuck fluffer. Cuck fluffer. Eh, no, I was, uh, no, I died laughing when she was like, get that twink out of here. And I was like, <laughs> um, and I can split him like dry wood. Good stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I also like that, you know, when she's, she gets that moment like, oh, he's breaking up with me. And he goes, oh, no, you I'm going to cling to. Just other Shit, people, you, not you, so you, much. you stole it from me. But, yeah, that's what I was <laughs> getting to. That's a great little moment there. 
Um, and then, you know, then he asked the congresswoman for a job. And I'm like, this is great. This is good stuff with Huey. He is becoming more of a, more of a stern, stronger character. Robert, real quick, like 50 words or less, um, Starlight and Huey, go. Their relationship is nice. Uh, I mean, when <laughs> they can get past some of the BS, they they work well together, both as characters and as actors. You know, there's some genuine mm-hmm. on-screen chemistry there, especially the especially the type of chemistry they're going for. They're not going for, you know, like raw sexual eroticism. These people <laughs> care about each other, and their right. attraction is based as much on, you know, again, romance and emotional connection as anything physical. In fact, as much insults as they throw at you. I mean, even Starlight's mother goes, really, the boy with the sweaty hands? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my favorite moments between the two were... Uh, at the hotel where they were he was giving her a hard time about the candy bar she likes and <laughs> almond joy they're the worst it turns yeah turns out the almond joy is the one thing that actually saved her life um but but yeah it's uh <laughs> can i just say that the that the in-world analog of deadpool just having a nut allergy made me laugh <laughs> i know dude because i hate He's deadpool like, so much because you can't figure out why and what is going on what did queen Maeve do to black noir to make him you know, almond just, joy. Yeah, he's got a tree nut allergy. <laughs> Perfect. They're gonna reuse that costume for Snake Eyes, I think. Jesus oh. Christ. The, there's a couple of scenes with Black Noir where I'm like, "Wow, Snake Eyes, much?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, even Carl Urban car, calls him a, a ninja at one point. So it's like there's Snake Eyes uh, parallels you can pull no no matter what here. He's a combination of Snake Eyes and Deadpool because his face is all screwed up and he's got the two swords over his back. It's That's what he is. He's their version of that. Uh, it's sad that he's... It's sad that that character has not done anything with other than being, you know, the monstrous heavy. Yeah. I mean, in the comics, he's a failed clone of Homelander. He's got... He's, he's got these tiny little glimpses of what his personality is throughout the second season. There's one one moment with him in the second season that I genuinely loved. It's after they've uh, revealed the... It's after Compound V has been revealed to the world. And he's just sitting on the floor in a hallway looking at this news on his phone about superheroes being created, being artificially created, and he's not making any noise, but he's very clearly, like, sobbing. Yeah, he's crying big time. And the other one that I remember is when I think it's in the first episode or second episode where he goes and takes out that um, it's a foreign terrorist, foreign super terrorist. And then he comes across the kid who's just sitting there. Yeah, the kid is, I mean, extremely afraid of what Black Noir may possibly do. And he grabs the bunny and he just kind of mocks it hopping. And then that's it. You're like, what is up with Black Noir? That's some, but that, that's what I like about the character. Obviously, it's the mystery. And they, as as far as I'm concerned, I, I love how they portray the character silent, but you just can't you can't you can't figure him out. I want to talk next about a plot line I could have done without, and I feel like it was written into the show to give the character something to do because they more or less had written him out of the main story arc. Um, I don't know... I can't swear in a stack of Bibles they didn't do this with this character or some other character in the comic book. I mean, the comic book ran forever. 
So who knows? And I'm only 14 issues into it. But the whole story arc with the deep basically becoming a Scientologist. <laughs> I was yeah. utterly bored by in with, you know, there are there with, with shows, especially that are hour, that Look. are an hour in length. Hang on. That are an hour in length. There's going to be some stuff that I'm watching the screen with rapt attention and I'm really focusing on, not just because I have to talk about it later so it helps if I know what's going on, but because I'm genuinely interested. And then there's some stuff that every time it comes on, I'm playing with my phone. And everything that happened with the deep, other than running the speedboat into the whale as he's standing there, (laughs) (laughs) which was fucking hilarious. That is my my favorite, like, just stupid action sequence ever maybe just all right pulls up in a sperm whale all right you're not getting past me and butcher just full uh, you know throttle all the way up baby here we go right into it and you know any other show they would have done that and then the next scene that you see them they're all outside of the whale maybe covered in blood but no nope. they do scenes inside the whale <laughs> Oh, what that Huey? scene, be- that bit between Mother's Milk and, and uh, Huey, as he's, you know, as Huey's like, I'm done. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to die in this whale. And Mother's Milk's like, well, we're, we're both going to die together then because I'm not leaving without Huey's you. Next, <laughs> that's Huey's next to the, like, still faintly beating heart. <laughs> I've, I, I got a throat. Yeah, you can see it sitting there. All these organs are pulsating. It's so <laughs> gross. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if you're planning on. I don't know if you're planning on talking about Mother's with Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Milk at all. I mean, he's not that big of a character. But I just want to go ahead and throw this out there before we talk about the deep storyline. But I, my, the guy who played Mother's Milk, I've got his name here. Um, uh, i got to scroll up, though. Laz Alonzo. Uh Mother's Milk is the most wholesome character out of this whole show. And so help me, if you stop me from finishing this Victorian dollhouse, (laughs) I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Uh, I loved his character. And just the fact that you talked about, you know, you brought it up that he went in there and he sat down with Huey and he's like, I'm not going if you're not going. And there are so many moments throughout the series where Mother's Milk steps up and does something that is just it's the antithesis of what you'd think somebody in that position would do. He is he is he has battled these superheroes. He's gone on all these missions before, but he's not this hard, you know, militant man. He's instead is somebody that just wants to get back to his wife and kids and he cares about the people around him. Um 
it comes off great. Uh, and, and there are so many moments throughout the season where I was like, okay, that the, that guy is portraying that character. Laz Alonso is definitely uh, portraying that character to a T that makes him interesting and, like I said, most wholesome character on the whole show. So, all right, back to the deep. Yeah, just um, and just really quickly, so we can, so that you guys can weigh in on this. I just didn't, I didn't care about his storyline. I didn't care about his redemption. He's not a good person. So the fact that they tried to redeem him in some way, and then they turn that on its head, and it's it's sort of a, uh, it's a poking fun at the celebrity who goes on the you know the the false redemption arc. Redemption yeah. tour. Yeah, you know, it's the bit that Dennis Leary did in No Cure for Cancer. He's like, I'm going to go on a bender. And I'm going to do all the drugs. I'm going to start beating my kids. And I'm going to go into rehab. I'm going to come out. And I'm going to be on People Magazine. And I'm going to be like, sorry, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it's the, like. You know, it, it's the equivalent of Jesse Smollett going on Oprah and just, like, with tears streaming down his face. I just cared so damn much, Oprah. I had to fake it. Yeah. Like, I. Because he's not a good character and he contributes nothing to the overall story arc. I'm like, what? Like, did you just like this character and you wrote something for him to do because you didn't oh. want to do away with him? He's like, the comedic relief. Uh, I mean, there are funny parts for other characters, but I mean, whenever you see the deep on the screen, do you remember the dolphin from season one? I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's t- dial that up and put a whale in, in, in there instead. I mean, there's. That's what I think a lot of. Hang on, let me let me say this, and then you know okay. you have the floor, and I will shut the fuck up. Go so ahead. Sheehan went on a tear last night about the cynicism of Garth Ennis and the boys in general, you know, and everything post Watchmen. Like his exact words were, "We did this already. It was called the Watchmen. Stop reading comic books if you don't like them. Certainly don't work in the industry." And I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> um, he really like lit into the idea of deconstructing comic books post Watchmen. And this is where I agree with him. This feels like the writers think Aquaman is the worst, stupidest character ever. And I think for those of us who have read Aquaman comics, the, the character, the character as presented as a as a children's kitty television show character is silly and should be rightly mocked in open culture. The character has been presented through a hundred years of comic books is badass and deep and multi-layered and really doesn't deserve mockery. But if you're a Hollywood television writer, you probably haven't read much Aquaman in your life. So much like when people's only reference to Batman is the 60s show, when your only reference to Aquaman is the fucking Super Friends, he's a great character to satirize and make fun of and be the butt of jokes. And I feel like with The Deep... It's the writers in the room going, isn't Aquaman a silly character? Let's write silly stuff for this character. We hate him. And it drove me up the wall. Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, if I'm, hang on, actually, if yeah. I might address part of that very briefly. You're going to yell at me? No. <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> Shut up, Jesse. Look, I, I, can, I can appreciate the notion that, you know, deconstructing, I think deconstructions are... Uh, they are. It is a term that is thrown around, and an entire mode of writing that is overdone because it, it's an. It potentially allows writers to be lazy. Well, I would tell you that. But hang on. I think deconstructionist literature is an important part of the overall medium. 
it may be overdone and used poorly, but I think it's necessary. Hang on. I completely agree with that. I I love a good deconstruction. Keyword there being good. I think what people miss about... Uh, and since you guys you know, were talking purely about the written word last time around uh, with Sheehan there, his complaints about that might be entirely valid. Uh, it, that said, Watchmen was written, I'm sorry, when? A hundred years ago. Alan uh, Moore, V for Vendetta. <laughs> I, I know, look, I know who wrote it. I'm saying, No, he's doing a bit. Was... He's he's doing he for the longest time. If Jesse couldn't remember anything on source material, I would just start naming Alan Moore comics. Yeah, and you didn't help. <laughs> so, uh, point being, I forget, I forget the year Watchmen was published. Pretty it's sure it was eighty four, eighty five. Yeah, I'll okay, look it up so to be sure. But go ahead. That's that's roughly as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you what you really want to pretend that the genre hasn't evolved and could potentially use another round of deconstruction thirty some odd years later? Come on. That that I find that to be, well, er, hang on, let me finish. I find that ahead. to be a slightly erroneous position to take. However, when it comes to this show in particular, the reason I like it so much as a great deconstruction is it's not deconstructing comics the same way that Watchmen deconstructed comics. The boys, the television show in particular, deconstructs comics, comic adaptations as films. And that's not the same thing as deconstructing them in written format. That's so when you understand that the deep is not meant to satirize Aquaman as Aquaman is written, it's meant to satirize Aquaman as Aquaman is perceived by the general public. Uh, again, it's a me- it's a meta reference uh, on a level that is not just hey let's make fun of Aquaman. Okay. It's, this is the perception of Aquaman. Let's play around with that. I 100% agree with you and accept that, and I think that that's a brilliant point. I think if I, if I can just convey this one bit of frustration and then let's let Jesse have his, his turn here. Um, it's... You and I have talked at great length about how Hollywood writers and critics and, you know, we always make the joke about, like, you just wanted to be invited to the party. They think awfully high of themselves. And yes. I think in many cases... They are, there's, I don't know if self-righteous is is quite the right term, but they definitely think that they're better than comic book writers. They're they're self-aggrandizing. Self-aggrandizing is, yeah, is the term I'm looking for. You know, it's, well, we don't write those, those stupid funny books that are for children. We're Hollywood writers. We're writing at a higher medium. And so, without... If I if I can dis- disconnect myself from my prejudice against Hollywood writers, I can accept that they are sing- singularly focusing on the public's reaction to the perception of Wonder of of Wonder Man of Aquaman. My problem is it's hard for me to do that because all I see is a bunch of like WWE television writers thinking they're so funny and they're so you know and, and they're so deep. But they're, they're all a bunch of toaster ovens. And where do you get off making fun of something that's valuable to a portion of the, of the public? I, I, it's, it, there's an inherent disrespect that I can't seem to get around. And I think every time uh, I see the deep and what they're doing with him, I'm like, fuck you people. Just fuck you. Remember when he well, tripped uh, on shrooms and his gills started talking to him? Dude, that was the best. <laughs> 
still singing You Are So Beautiful to me. That's what, Jesse what? That's Jesse telling me, shut up, you're taking this too seriously. What? Was that Patton Oswalt, by the way? Or, or who was voicing those? Any idea? I'd like to know, because it sounded like Patton oh, Oswalt. Okay. Well, I was curious. Um, no, go ahead. Were you well, going to say something, Winfrey? Well, the only thing I would say to to that in response to Mark, I completely understand you're not, you know... I'm not much of a comic reader. Much of my knowledge of comics is kind of osmotic. I either uh, pick it up listening to other people talk about it or on occasion for purposes of comparison to another medium, I will read them. It, and that's not me saying they're ter- that's not a that's not a value assessment in terms of like these are not good. It's just kind of where my personal interests lie. I haven't been I just haven't read a tremendous amount of them. So that said, I completely acknowledge the long suffering that a great many fans of various comics <laughs> and comic IPs had to go through when it came to more mainstream adaptations of their material. So I, I understand your your knee jerk reaction there. And if it were any other show, I'd say you have a point. The only reason I kind of stick up for it in this case is almost every other element of this season in particular is so well is so perfectly designed to satirize what they're deliberately satirizing that Mm -hmm. I I give them there's not enough supporting evidence purely within the show we're talking about for me to agree that these are people going isn't Aquaman in every possible iteration just a giant waste of space and hilarious here's here's last thing hang on in another property I think you'd be dead on because we've seen that before. It, let me let me say this, and then Jesse, just jump in because if you don't, you'll never talk. Um, <laughs> it, it it's kind of like they say about the N word. Like you can't use that word. That's our word. Like I think if comic book writers want to want to deconstruct Aquaman or sort of point out the inherent silliness of him or any other character, I'm accepting of it. When it's asshole Hollywood writers who are like I like I use the Batman sixty six analog, um, you know who think that that you know when Joel Schumacher thinks that's Batman, and doesn't know the rich history of Batman, so that doesn't enter into his in, into his vision for the movie. It's utterly frustrating for me. It's like people who didn't do their their homework, and again, it's like it's it, you know people riffing on something that they don't have any kind of stake in and think that they understand when they really don't. Jesse, please talk. All right. Okay. (laughs) So Watchmen was published 1986, 1987, by the way. And Patton Oswalt did voice deep skills. So there (laughs) you go. (laughs) Um, Best thing Patton Oswalt has ever done. (laughs) (laughs) So I, uh, I, look, I, my, guess is it's nowhere near as complicated as we may think it had been. I guarantee you these guys were sitting around. <laughs> they were sitting around the table, and they were like deep really hit it off in season one. We need to give them something to do in season two. Okay, how about this convoluted plot? Uh, what do we do? Uh, Scientology. Somebody said that. They're like, okay, got it. Church of the Collective. And we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And uh, they obviously connected the dots to where we could get A-Train in there and then get the classified Stormfront documents over to the boys. Um, so I, there's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of commentary throughout this second season about things that are going on. Commentary about 
possibly Aquaman and how goofy he is. And uh, oh my goodness, how uh, how can anybody take this character seriously? Um, do you guys remember the sepia tone that they used when they were filming the movies? And then when all of a sudden when they yelled cut, it come back to like a blue tone. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> obviously, that was a commentary. Oh, that was <laughs> nice little jab at something. Um, they were and, jabbing at, at Zack Snyder. Exactly. So we're jabbing at all the DC movies. He's he's the most obvious uh, culprit in that respect. He is far from alone. Then, I mean, he, they had this they had this great like. Uh, I mean, again, it's it, it's entirely a meta joke. So if anyone else disagrees with me about it being funny, then fair enough. But when they're sitting around starting the film and Homelander just kind of sarcastically goes, "Yeah, those uh, those Joss rewrites really uh, really punched things up." <laughs> I mean, I look. I thought it was funny because no, Joss Whedon didn't do anything to save just to save Dawn of Just or uh, to save Justice League as a movie. He made it worse. Yeah, there's. Whenever I saw the deep on the screen, I knew there was usually something that I was going to be laughing at. Uh, but when you look at actually, okay, just think of the character of the deep as a real person. Okay, who's mixed up in this crazy Hollywood slash superhero life. And really, when I saw these people, a lot of times the characters, especially the superheroes of the seven or the former superheroes of the seven, I was just looking at their lives and comparing them to anybody who was trying to get into Hollywood and all the links that they would go to. There's <laughs> the point where A-Train is found out to have been the one who jumped in and got those records and the deep sitting right by him and the deep is responsible for bringing him into the church of the collective and immediately he looks over and goes oh fuck that guy i, I had no idea and then within <laughs> seriously one minute later after the the, the head guy the, the that first chair of the church is a fantastic actor by the way i could never pronounce his name uh but he hey, hang you know, on i want you to try no way no no, no dude no. there's Wait. no way no, no, i'm no, no. I, 100% I try to pronounce this gentleman's name. <laughs> okay, hold stop. on a second. No, first of all, Jesse, stand up for yourself. Second of all, stop bullying him. I'm not, I'm not bullying him. I want to hear... Third I of all, how dare you cry. cheat How dare you cheat on me with Jesse? That's our bit. <laughs> I need to find his name, first off. I can't remember. What was the name of the character? Because I cannot remember the name of the character. I just know him as the he first chair of the Church of the Collective. It's like something, and his last name starts with an N. Help. Help me n name the character. Name does not start with an N. Oh, jeez. Well, oh, the act the actor's last name does not start with an N. Okay, all if, right. Well, I'll, I would find like it. To look up, if you would like to look up the actor, he was also one of the leads on ER during its kind of like second phase. Okay. He and Noah he and uh, Noah Wiley shared like co lead for on that for a while. We have been doing this podcast for ten hours. Please move. Ah, <laughs> I need to find the guy's name. Anyway, um. Okay, I'll give you his first name. Oh, I got it. Here we go. You ready? Goran Misinjic. Isn't that a character in Star Wars? <laughs> no. <laughs> I knew there was okay, an in in there. For the record, Jesse, you're not you that is not as bad as you think it is in terms how of how do you to put that gentleman. How do you put a long vowel sound over the S? How do you do that? Uh, he's from Croatia, right? Sure. Is that South Confirm Wales? That. Confirm that for me, please. You're looking oh, at his Wikipedia. I do. You. I have it here. 
Vor- yes, born born in seventy two, Sibenik, Croatia, Yugoslavia. Then it becomes more of a. I think we pronounce that as a bit more of the yes sage. Okay. When you when you extend the s in uh, in Croatian. So I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that far off. No, you you weren't. You are not as bad as other people have been at trying to pronounce uh, that particular name. <laughs> I did not say Shmagegi, just for the record. You did okay. not. <laughs> Mark. All right, Mark. So, yeah. Okay, the uh, hang on. So, oh, well, just my, my, let me give you my two thoughts, two cents on the deep here real quick. Um, you're correct, I think, in that, you know, it, you liken it to Hollywood because that's a very easy comparison to make. And I come back to, and I know referencing something this gentleman in particular said might get got, might annoy some people because of who he is as a person, but I still think this is a true statement. Uh, much as I may, much as I might find elements of how he has conducted himself distasteful, uh, Senator Ted Cruz had a line about uh, Washington D.C. Uh, uh, he said that it's like Hollywood for unpopular kids in high school. In that, that's why when they get there, they never want to leave. <laughs> and I think that's kind of correct. So it, again, we liken it. We all kind of liken it to Hollywood because we—that's uh, that's still enough of a cultural touchstone to make sense. But it's any group. It's any time you've reached what you consider to be the pinnacle, or you finally get in wherever in happens to be. Again, whether it's you know some form of elected office and uh, on the national scale, making movies. Uh, whatever it happens to be. When you get in, and then when you get ousted, uh, I mean, there's this brilliantly overacted sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Leonardo DiCaprio finds out that he can either... uh, that, you know, one of his only career options at this point is to go make spaghetti westerns in Italy. And I, I think I said in our review of that particular movie that he goes into the parking lot and has a more emotional reaction than Mark did when he found out he had cancer. <laughs> and it is, it is just, I made it, this is great, and that's one of the things about certain characters, they, they tend to show the opposite. They show, I made this, and it's, I made it, it, quote, and it sucks. Here we have people going, I made it, it was great, and now I don't have it, and I am desperate to get back to it. And mm-hmm. they play it more for laughs with the deep. But there is a sequence when uh, early on in, I think, the first couple of episodes with him where he's breaking down, and one of the things he says is, I'm just so lonely. And, again, whatever the deep may be as a person, and, yeah, he's kind of a piece of crap. But to go from being on top of the world to stuck in Sandusky, Ohio, <laughs> about 20 minutes away from where Jesse lives, <laughs> uh, to losing all contact with everyone that, you know, you thought kind of helped give your life shape, flavor, and meaning, that is soul-crushing. It really is. And I, part of me wishes they had treated it more seriously than for comedy, but you can't have everything. And he's a... The thing about there's also a great I'll give the deep just a little bit of credit and the actor too. There's a great moment after the infamous speedboat whale collision when he's kind of mourning the death of this whale. And 
there's actually a couple with the deep that I want to talk about. So l- let me do this one first. When he's kind of sad about the death of this whale, ev- the other members of the seven show up. He's like, yeah, I heard that you guys were in trouble. I was, I was close by, wanted to give you some help. They went that away. Everybody else heads out except for Homelander, who stops him, who kind of stops him as everyone else is heading out. Like, you need to stay here. Make sure they don't double. He gives some BS excuse. Then he gives the real excuse. Your vest tore, and I can see your gill. Cover it up. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, the Deep's reaction to that. Yeah. It, you know, he's worked so hard to build himself up. He even talked to his gills at one point. And he then, went tripping balls to make peace with himself. He man. did. And then the one person he loves and respects and holds that one thing dear, that spot on the seven, is right there in front of him, looks at him, and calls him disgusting. That's rough. And he did a great job conveying that. Yeah, the other thing, and just very briefly, when he talks about uh, when he when his powers first started manifesting, you know, and he walked by a pet shop and he heard all the goldfish begging for their lives. Like, again, the deep is presented somewhat comically, but there's also a deep well of kind of tragedy around him. You know, can you imagine for just a minute if every time you walked by an aquarium, you could hear what everything was thinking? That would be rough. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, it, that's what Aquaman was missing, uh, you know? That's... then. That real, that bit of realism. If you're going to compare him to Aquaman, well, here's your bit of realism, your bit of deconstruction. Well, this is exactly what would it be like if you could understand what sea animals or or underwater animals, underwater fish, and all that could could were talking and saying. What were they? What what are they pleading for? You know, it's and again, it's just a little bit that kind of lets you know these people are screwed up and they're not good people. But you get just enough on occasion about what made them that way that I I really do applaud that because it's so much easier to write, well, the deep, you know, he's got low self-esteem because he knows he's kind of a joke and, oh, it's got to, and sure, they send me to the docks because what what good am I if there's no water around, which is true. Uh, It's easy to do that very flat. It's, you know, the actor and the writers deserve enough recognition for just twisting it a little bit to give you some sense of okay this guy's a piece of crap but he's not a piece of crap just because we wanted to make him a piece of crap you know there this is what happened and maybe you individually listener might think you could handle that better but maybe not mark radlich um, well, we, we've been talking, we, we were all very excited about this show. We were talking over each other a lot. I wanted to make sure we were done. <laughs> I'm queuing you up, brother. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, uh, we're like butter on this podcast. Smooth as, um, okay. We need to start wrapping. I want to, um, and I'm going to sort of dedicate this to things left unsaid, things we didn't address, um, burning desires. The one thing I want to talk about is Queen Maeve. Uh, she was... Okay. <laughs> I, I say this only about her for this season. I almost felt like they could we could have done without her, apart from her showing up at the end with the MacGuffin to get Homelander not to commit murder. Well, okay, that's that's kind of what I wanted to talk about, but I feel the opposite. Um, in the first season, she's just sort of burnt out, sort of morally, uh, morally broken, 
sort of soulfully bereft person who has you know like they do the bit with starlight and the deep and the blowjob and in the comic it's the same thing only it's homelander and you know and and you know starlight look, look, looks up to queen mave and queen mave you know just immediately is super cynical and shoots down her idealism and is like this this is the the, the worst <laughs> it's a, boy boy are you in for a surprise um but here the you know the the show definitely likes to take its aims at certain things going on in the culture and with queen mave you know and we talked we talk about this a lot on this network about how you know there's nothing wrong with being gay but there's nothing inherently right about it either it's just a state of being there are good there are bad it it, it is what it is but it tends to be one of those things that gets put on a pedestal as if you know as if being gay in and of itself is a virtuous thing and more to more to that that we tend in society especially now and this is what the show is kind of making fun of we tend to want to label and put into very strict boxes uh people you know depending on whatever it is that they are and in this case with queen mave you know, they out her as being gay, and she's like, "Well, I'm actually bi," and she doesn't really want to put a label on anything. She just wants to live her the life, and she's in love with this other the woman. Immediate re- the immediate response from the ni- from the very clearly like gay branding guys is, yeah. "Well, bi doesn't play as well." Yeah, I was getting to that. Like, and I actually talked about that on the on on the the comic book show. It's just like, no, 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 no. Bi confuses people. That's not what we want here. You know, gay sends a great good, you know, a great positive message. Bi will just mess people up, and it confuses the message. You're not bi. No men for you. And, and, and then, Queen, and Queen fo- Mary was like, I, I just up. want to be a person. And they follow that up with, uh, and her poor partner, <laughs> that poor woman. They follow that up with, well, we're going to re- completely redesign you because now you're with Maeve, so that means you're part of the corporate structure, and we now own your soul. And we- we've got this kind of style design reshift for you, and she goes, that looks like a suit. <laughs> yeah, you know. It, it, you know, we'll get good desi- we'll get good designers and what like and her response is I don't like that. That's not <laughs> what I wear. And well, people respond better to lesbian couples when they can when they still feel they can define the gender roles and style. You know, look at Ellen and Portia. <laughs> and you know, this poor woman who's never in her life been re- remotely attached to anything this powerful in terms of, you know, corporate st- or cultural structure goes she just want she is just horrified by all this because and wants to nope out of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. Like I, this is what I mean. Like I think that just as just as I had as many problems with the deep, you know, and like everything with the deep bored me. I loved everything with Queen Maeve. I love that they used the Queen Maeve character to talk about this in the show because, like, it weirdly you would think like, what does this have to do with anything? But they took a character who in the first season was seemed seemed to be only there as sort of an after picture for what starlight's going you know she's the ghost of christmas future this is where starlight's going to eventually go as this system breaks her down and destroys her spirit she'll become queen mave um here they actually use queen mave to talk about what we tend to do when we um idolize is not the right word but when we put up on a pedestal people being gay just for being gay and 
And I like that. I li- and I like the way the actress handled it. And there's a great sequence where after she's like flipped out on the girlfriend and she's like thrown a table and they end up breaking up. And now she's sleeping with a guy and in walks the, the executive. Poor, poor <laughs> Ashley walks in to find Maeve high as a kite between two men. Yeah. And, she, and the first thing she says is, this is not gay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and then Queen Maeve has like, like one of the best lines of the show. And it's such as, you know, in a show where heads are exploding and people drive into whales, she still has a great line. And it's so subtle and so simple. She's like, can you please just be a person for a moment? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, well, she doesn't just say be a person for a moment. She says, can you be a person again? You know, because Maeve yeah. remembers Ashley as the, you know, the coffee grabbing intern. Right. Like, just can you please just be a person again for a minute? And at which point Ashley goes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry your relationship fell apart. I, I think the, uh, the irony for me is that it's a Hollywood show that dealt, dealt with this. And it's Hollywood that's responsible for doing that to gay people. Mm. Of course. Uh, I think with Queen Maeve, a lot of what happened in that arc really is the focal point of the show and that is all about public perception that is just look at just about everything that Vought is going through to make sure that their public you know their their public perception is top notch and they don't want anything to to stain the reputation and we go from you know, Vought creating super soldiers and Compound V being a discovery, and now everybody's upset about it. Then the tables turn just because someone steps in and uses, you know, public perception is a master at it. And that's Stormfront, obviously, with the memes and everything like that. But that scene that you guys were talking about, where the PR people sat down with Maeve and Elena, her girlfriend, and tried to go through how they wanted them to be seen. Not only that, they... This is your life now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Homelander outs her on national, on television. And and that's a... If you talk to anybody who has came out, that's a very, very personal thing. Uh, And they... Homelander does that right on there. And the only reason he does that is because he's making a play at public perception. He, he names like all the people that the diversity that they have on the team, uh, you know, and yeah, Mark, you're right. What? Hollywood, Hollywood has done this. Well, we've to got, us. Man, what are you, what are you talking about diversity? I mean, we've got black noir. He doesn't even identify with a particular <laughs> race. We have our, yeah. So, so that's it, all that covered. And Hey, we've even got a gay member of the seven. Who's got a Latina girlfriend? It's, it's and it's so, so funny. It's like it's that idea of you, you're not a person; you're your race. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, she's not she's not Maeve, a person. You know, a multifaceted person with you know with wants, needs, and emotions. She's a gay. Yeah, she's yeah. whatever whatever gets them them few points, uh, <clears throat> them few extra points in the public eye. It's dehumanizing. And- and I love that. I, and I love that about the show that the show recognizes that. And I said the supreme irony being, you're the people doing that to people, though. <laughs> you're yeah. the you're the machine that dehumanizes people. Like what ir- what rich irony that you're editorializing on the shit you do. Well, who else is gonna ed- who else is gonna editorialize on it in a way that people care about? I mean, you're not wrong. I just can I not point out no, no, the irony? You you absolutely can. I deeply appreciate that. I I just do think it deserves to be said, 
you know, bloggers have been complaining about this for years now and yep. no one cares. <laughs> yep. So that's that's that that's the one thing I wanted to talk about. In the back of my mind, I also think somebody should bring up the girl and the friend and the Frenchman, Frenchie, um, just because it plays such a big role, especially in the first four episodes with um, the the girl's brother and what happens to him. Except that I don't give a shit about any of those characters, so I don't care. Um, Jesse, your thoughts? <laughs> I, I well, I obviously love the relationship between Kamiko and Frenchie, and uh, they're evolving. Uh, you know, at one point they were as far apart as you could get, and then towards the end, obviously they're finally starting to find common ground. And Frenchie loves her. Uh, you, you could tell Frenchie absolutely loves Kamiko, uh, and is trying to do what he can to save her. And you know, when Kamiko goes off and does all the Punisher stuff uh, in taking hits for uh, from Frenchie's former girlfriend, um, and. Frenchie does one thing and he comes in, uh, into that church and he says, this will poison your soul. And it, it, it's again, it's another uh, virtuous uh, statement by one of the boys. And you could tell he just has nothing but, you know, he wants good for her. And to, this girl got reunited with her brother, then watched Stormfront kill her uh, uh, or kill him. So pretty violently, too. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was rough. Are we talking about Stormfront here? I mean, is that is that coming up next, or are we? Or... I imagine. I imagine next. Okay, will be because everyone's favorite uh, oh. social justice Nazi. <laughs> we at well, least got to close out. With I, that. Di- I didn't know there was any more to talk about her with. So yeah, use your time to talk about her because honestly, well, I thought we covered it with Homelander. I I Akash. I mean, all I really have to say is I Akash. I I've never. I don't think I've seen anything in uh, with with her in it before. And I say Aya, Aya, however you, however you pronounce her name. Uh, but my George, goodness. Did you even pronounce it differently between those two times you tried to say it? <laughs> Aya, Aya, Aya. Um, Aya, Aya, Fofina, Fanana, Bana, Bobana. Exactly. So, <laughs> yes, I, I, I do have to mock everyone else's accent on occasion. That's all right. Can't help it. Vampirella. <laughs> Vampirella. <laughs> so, anyway, fantastic. Probably one of the. Uh, you know, top three performances of this season, in my opinion. She is so her superpower. Obviously, we see that manifest on the screen, but I swear it's also passive aggressive because uh, she can really make you think. Uh, just the way that she acts and fantastic. I just really want to give her props. And yeah, she's a great villain. Uh, you know how much better of a villain can you get than a racist? Uh, bigot Nazi uh, coming into the seven of all people so you want to see her fall and boy does she fall she falls and loses a few limbs while she's at it great stuff <laughs> um, Robert is there anything any plot lines any characters anything that we didn't cover that um, anything else about Stormfront that you want to talk about uh, I got a couple of housekeeping things here sure that I can kind of be brief with um, you know, the stuff with Frenchie and Kimiko, uh, I understand you being bored by it. I It wasn't a highlight of the season for me, but I appreciated the fact that it was there. It was something for the characters to do, and it, you know, it didn't make me want to fast forward, unlike a lot of some of Stormfront stuff, which I did on occasion. <laughs> like, okay, skip. Um and as far as Stormfront goes, yeah, she's a a wonderful villain who does a great turn. Uh, you know, she starts out as this insufferable, like, 
you know, neoliberal. And then just kind of slowly reveals, no, I'm literal Nazi. Was, in fact, there for the Holocaust. Thought it should have continued. Yeah. I, I, I think that was... The way they kind of led you down that path with her, I thought was quite good. Uh, her interactions with Starlight were just beyond painful. I, I just had no time for that. Um... I liked, again, a lot of the meta humor that came out of them actually shooting the air equivalent of the Avengers or the Justice League movie. Uh, it's a really small plot point, but uh, it provided a lot of humor for me, so I, I appreciated that. Um, okay, so just two things, very quickly. We get the girl power scene in this show. Mm. Yeah. And it's the cl it's the closest that scene has come to not being a self-indulgent wank since its inception. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I, I especially love that they let Frenchie be the one to take the piss out of it by going, wow, girls really do get it done. <laughs> uh, it was, I, I, it's oh. not that I have anything against those scenes on some kind of like fundamental, you know, philosophical level. But they're just so... Again, they're just so masturbatory. Like, look at us! Like, no, piss off. <laughs> I'm sorry, why exactly were all the female uh, members of the Avengers in that one place at that one time for Endgame? Oh, just for this shot that we're desperately hoping you'll make your Twitter banner? Get bent. <laughs> uh, you, you know, the, the two people being there to save Scarlet Witch from Proxima Midnight in Infinity War uh, being... Uh, Okoye and Black Widow, yeah, much more tolerable to me personally, as far as like my artistic sensibilities go. This one, where the only other superheroes to show up happen to be women, and they just beat the crap out of Stormfront. Again, the fact that they took the piss out of their own what is already a satirical reference, I'll allow it. Uh, and lastly, a smaller note, but this television show did the best thing any television show can do to improve its quality. It hired Giancarlo Esposito. Mm. Agree. He doesn't. He doesn't do a whole lot this season, but he does a bit, and what he does is good to the shock of no one, including taking Homelander down a peg in a way that no one else does. Like, oh yeah. I, I don't think. I don't think for the entire rest of this season does anybody damage Homelander's ego the way that Edgar does when he says, "You seem to be laboring under a misconception." <laughs> we're not a superhero company. We're a pharmaceutical company. You're a byproduct of our product. And you, man-child that you are, just put the most valuable asset we actually have out into the world, and it is now inevitable that it will become public knowledge and other people will knock it off. So thanks for that. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's great because this is Homelander at the height of his ego. Oh, yeah. He has... He has gotten them all into the military. He has dealt a colossal blow to his sort of human nemesis. He's discovered he's got a son and forced his way into being part of that child's life. Everything is coming up Homelander, right down to the flood pants. And then here comes Giancarlo Esposito to remind him, no, in fact, you may have just ruined everything. Good job, Chief. <laughs> he also delivered... He also delivers the best, uh, like, the, the line or the sentiment, it's not personal, it's just business, has become cliche and has been cliche for a while. 
But Giancarlo Esposito's delivery of that essentially same line is among the best it's been delivered, you know, right up there with Al Pacino in The Godfather. When, you know, Billy Butcher just looks at him across that table during their sit-down and goes, oh, so it's just business, eh? And his response is, you know, when in the entirety of human history, Mr. Butcher, has it ever been about anything else? Yeah, I mean, Butcher's sitting there explaining to him, look, you brought Stormfront onto the Seven. You're an African-American. What are you doing? And that's his response. And, I mean, it, it speaks volumes. I hope he's back for more in the next season. I, I mean, I love Giancarlo Esposito's work as a general rule of thumb. I hope they give him more to do, not just in the sense that I want him on my screen more, but he is a little bit... You, you ever get the... I feel like there's a bunch of times lately when he's been cast when the direction he's given is, yeah, that Gus Fring guy. He just kind of wants you to channel that. <laughs> and because he's and because he is both very good at that and a professional and getting paid, he's happy to do so. But I would like to see him I'd like to see him do something other than another minor iteration of Gustavo Fring, personally. So volume two of the book, uh the first half of it has them investigating the the murder of a young gay boy who was thrown from a roof. And, you know, it pokes fun at Batman. It pokes fun at Batman and Robin. Um, the, the gay innuendo of a rich man and his, you know, and his boy Ward and all of that. Um, well, sir, I will, I will have you know we've been now served with cease and desist letters from the Wayne estate that will not stand for this slander. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the second half of it has my new favorite superhero and Christian's favorite superhero, Love Sausage. Remember him, Jesse? <laughs> Man, I wasn't leaving this podcast without talking about the scene where Mother's Milk nearly gets strangled <laughs> by a 10-foot schlong. Uh, my favorite scene related to that is not so much that it happened, which is funny, but in the aftermath when, Fre- when Mother's <laughs> Milk Frenchy. is talking with Butcher and Frenchie in the background with his horn. Tell him you almost got choked out by a 20-foot cock. And then when... when and... <laughs> Butcher hears enough of this to go, wait, what did Frenchie say? And I, Mother's Milk, the only way to pass that off is the way he does. He's ah, just Frenchie being Frenchie. <laughs> so, um, like I said, in the book, they work directly for the CIA and they're their own little, like, hit squad. Um, but, like I said, the first half of it has Butcher and Huey kind of, you know, in the role of, like, detectives as they're on the case trying to solve the murder that the cops uh, botched. Of this uh, of this young teen, this young gay teen, and then the second half of the book is them on this mission to Russia. I bring that up because at the end of season two is where they say, "Hey, we're going to set up a task force that's going to be a bulwark against the the soups, against you know the seven, the soups in general." Uh, we, you know, we need someone, in, we need th- there to be a team to take these people down in case they go off the rails again. And it's sort of left up in the air whether or not Butcher's going to do it. But clearly that's where they're going with season three. So season three is now catching up to where the book's already been. And I'm hoping that at least we get a little bit of what I read in volume two. And that, you know, season three is... Or love sausage. uh, Definitely (laughs) there needs to be a love sausage episode. (laughs) I will not. If there's no love sausage, I'll riot. Um, But... 
I want you to know that I've been doing the I'll riot thing before there was an actual riot. Thank you very much. Before anyone, you know, writes me hate mail. Um, <laughs> oh boy, we've been for twenty years. We've been making that joke. Me and Freak Boy. Um, shout out to you, guy. All the while, you were just you know binging Effie's big gay brunch in the or big gay something in the background. It was big gay brunch, yes. Um, and it was no. Wonderful. Back then, it was his big gay something because they didn't he hadn't run the show yet. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It was, his, it was his big. It was his big gay morning coffee. Um, in any case, my point being that big night snack maybe. It, all right, you want to drag this out any longer? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so, I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> I want to see them get a little bit closer to the book if possible, and have them doing what I saw them do in the book, investigating a murder that has to do with soups, um, going on missions for the CIA, that sort of thing. Jesse, you read the book. Anything in particular you want to see them tackle in season three? Anything um, from the finale uh, where there are still strings they can pull on, like Huey going to work for the congressman who blows people's heads up, et cetera, et cetera? Anything that you want to, that you want to see in season three? Well, I think one of the big loose threads that I believe they'll probably pull on. Remember the lady that escaped? Uh, oh my goodness. The place in the Cindy, the Cindy, the massive telekinetic. Yes. She's just walking along and, and thumbs a ride. Uh, so I have, uh, I, I just have a sneaking suspicion we're probably going to be seeing her come back at some point in season three. Uh, as for the book itself and adapting anything from the book, Mark, I've only read what me and you've covered. So I don't know much past uh, that first volume. I should say me and Gavin covered. Uh, I don't know much past that first volume and what you guys talked about on the show yesterday. So uh, I, I know there's a lot out there and Garth Ennis has a warped mind. So I can't wait to see uh, what they bring from the series into the show, so I'll, I'll be I'll be excited to see what happens. All right, Robert Winfrey, take me home, season three. What do you like? What do you see? What do you wish for? Well, in addition to Cindy being out there, and of course the super powered Congresswoman who blows people's heads up, um, they left a giant opening when it comes to something they can for threads they can pull on uh, as far as season three goes, and that is actually from the finale we see little Ryan's eyes glow orange and we see a big flash of light and what we come back to is Butcher down a few feet away with one of his hands singed Stormfront having lost her arms and her legs and being badly burned and Rebecca bleeding from a wound to the neck yeah now, the funny thing about that, <laughs> very little of that actually makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought about that myself today when I was watching the finale. I was like, okay, who cut her neck? Was it, was it, uh, was it Stormfront because she had her hand on her neck, and when she got blue back, like maybe that cut her, or is could, that where you're going, Winfrey? Well, it, it's partially that. It could be that. Uh, there's also um, Billy's proximity to her when she gets nuked. The fact that he's slightly singed, while Rebecca seems, again, apart from the wound to her neck, to be unscathed, mm -hmm. to the loss of limbs. Now, 
We've seen Homelander sever them very deliberately with his eyes. We've never seen him, because these don't, the way her li- her arms kind of blew off, those were not the same kind of cauterized cuts that uh, Homelander's eye beams do. Those were more, uh, what's the technical term for it? Traumatic amputation, I think is the kind of something, medical term for something, something that is like blown off. Something like Anakin in the lava. No, because uh, Anakin's limbs were cut off by Obi-Wan and then he just caught on fire. Well, okay, I guess I brought that up because that's kind of what she looked like to me. She oh, looked she, like oh, An- she's certainly visually, yes. Yeah, she, she looked like a, Anakin at could, the end of Revenge of the Re- Revenge of the Sith. Look, Darth Stormfront, it could be coming. That was what I was getting to. Yes, mm. uh, that's definitely a thing that they could potentially go for. But it's more, I think, if they wanted to play around with stuff. The details of what happened when Ryan's eye beams went off could be something, because we saw Homelander's eye beams and what they did to Stormfront, and it wasn't that. So laser whatever's my, going on, laser my tits, you pussy. Yeah, now maybe it's just <laughs> that he has more control, and if he desperate, and if he completely loses it, we'll see something more akin to that. I don't know, but again, the way that whole sequence is structured. Uh, there is most certainly room for them to insert other narrative beats or twists and turns into the story. I like it. All right. Uh, well, this was a long show, but we had a lot to talk about, and we had very verbose people on this show, so, you know, it, that's going to hey, happen. I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> um. We've only said it a hundred times tonight. Yesterday, we covered The Boys Volume 2, Get Some. Uh, This Thursday, we've got a double shot for you first. Um, Myself and Chris Bailey will be talking about both nights of AEW New Year's Bayish. And then um, in the evening... It all sucked. Thank you. In the evening time, (laughs) myself and Cole Marantet and Sean Cromer will be looking at the second part of the Transformers War for Cybertron um, trilogy of cartoons. Last week... Last week, uh, Alexis Haina and I reviewed Red Sonia and Vampirella. Vampirella. Meet Betty and Veronica. You booed me, sir. That physically <laughs> hurts me. <laughs> uh, we went on to review the first part of The Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse, the new, um, rele- the new shorts on Disney+. And then finally, uh, we looked at Series 2 of His Dark Materials, which was based on The Subtle Knife. Uh, we also... The Posman and I also reviewed New Year's Evil and the Brody Lee Celebration of Life. So that's all up in the archives. Next oh, week... can I also just say, if you thought Rhea Ripley and uh, whatever her face is McCall was Gonzalez. like the most brutal... Whatever. If you thought that was the most brutal women's match you've ever seen, I really need to introduce you to some 90s Joshi because tame... Okay. If, you, I, if you've never seen, I, but I can't, Kong, but I can't say that it's not if I've never seen that stuff before. That's okay. That's fair. But if you've never seen Aja Kong try to headbutt Manami Toyota to death in the corner, you have not seen woman on woman brutality in the professional wrestling sense, sir. Terrific. Send me a link. Next week, um, myself and Pat Mullen will be looking at the human fucking wrecking machine that was George Foreman, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> 
I if you, <laughs> at if the you did not if you did not if you only if all you know of George Foreman is happy America's kind of grandfather selling grills and still willing to fight heavyweights at a high level, you know nothing of young George Foreman who would kill you dead for looking at him funny or for not looking at him funny. <laughs> I just watched him versus George Cooney today and I wrote Pat and I was just like number one George um sorry Jerry, Jerry Cooney George Cooney um I wrote Pat and I said hey first Jerry Cooney looks like John Kerry two holy shit that knockout um <laughs> Je- Jesse I know you abhor the violence but you ever see someone's brain get knocked out of their ear um that's how this guy got knocked out wow <laughs> George Man. Foreman beat beat this fucker like he owed him money um Speaking of owing someone money, myself and Christian will be looking at Star Wars Bounty Hunter Bounty Hunters by Ethan Sachs. Um, me and ninety-seven other people will be reviewing The Mandalorian season two, which all you fuckers ruined for me. Thank you very much. Spoiled every single oh, thing. Oh man, hold on, hang on, hang on. How long after the finale aired did you? Uh, were you planning on watching this? At the time of this recording, I've watched four episodes. Um, this past weekend. Okay, and this thing wrapped up, what, a month ago? At the end of December. Okay, that's on you. Fuck you. No. People need to not talk about television shows until I watch them. Yeah, I've got three episodes left of the finale, and I already know what's going to happen because of fucking Facebook. You, sir, are as bad as my father complaining midway through season... midway through the final season of Sons of Anarchy, I mentioned that... Gemma stabbed Tara to death in the previous season finale, and his response was, hey, spoiler, I haven't seen it yet. Like, but, Dad, <laughs> we're halfway through the final season at this point. Well, if you haven't caught up, that's on you. There's a part of me that wants to watch WandaVision extemporaneously instead of doing like I normally do and waiting until the week before and then binging it all at once, which has been my pattern. Because, and, and, I'm, and I'm making fun, but really, like you guys in my immediate podcast group have been really good about not... Like, especially with, like, Cobra Kai, there's been talk, and, you know, and with Mandalorian, there was talk, but nothing specific. And so I can't point to, like, Andrew or Pat and be like, y'all fuckers. Because that didn't, that's not what really happened. However, comic book resources needs to shut the fuck up every once in a while. 97 (laughs) articles about the Mandalorian is 96 too many. Um, You really need to not follow their content. They're terrible. Midnight's Edge was just as bad. First of all, the guys at Midnight's Edge... Like, stop bullying poor Kathleen Kennedy. You guys made 106 fucking videos about this woman. Knock <laughs> it off. <laughs> hey, she drives traffic. <laughs> Apparently. It's like, you know, they want, to, uh, they, they want to go back against the accusation that the, the guys on that channel and sort of fans at large are a bunch of incels that hate women. You're not helping. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Jesus, I spent New Year's watching their videos, and at the end of it, I was just like... Like, I want to send Kathleen Kennedy a get well card or something. Like, I feel bad for her now. Fucking bullies. Oh, no. (laughs) Why should you feel bad for the woman in charge of a multi-billion dollar franchise? Look, she fucked up and she's an asshole, but she doesn't deserve the 112 (laughs) videos that the Midnight's Edge people put out named Kathleen Kennedy's total failure. Kathleen Kennedy's fucking failure is complete. Jesus Christ. Obsessed much? My God. Wait, really, Mark? You're asking if people who make a living off of Star Wars fandom are obsessed? Yeah. In other news, the sky is blue. Film at 11. Water's wet. (laughs) In addition to which, we will be reviewing Hard to Kill. (laughs) 
on the same day as our Mandalorian review. We'll be doing an on trial for the Karate Kid 2010. Shut up, Robert. And then finally, uh, we will be doing a review of Cobra Kai season three. Wait, why? Yeah. Why shut up me? I didn't. I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah, Jackie Chan and Jaden Smith. Blah blah. Yakety schmackety. It hurts Look, my is, eyes. Is, is Jaden Smith generally a waste of space cinematically? Sure, but he's a terrible I, actor. I, I'm. I wasn't going to say anything about that <laughs> particular movie. <laughs> I'm not that. Hey, Jesse. What are you working on these days? Ah, Mark Radowitz. I've got a few shows out there. Uh, Syndicated source material is your journey back through some early source material episodes that never aired on the W2M network. Uh, So recently, I think it was last Saturday, Deadpool Illustrated, which was the fourth episode that aired back in 2014 uh, on the Radowitz and Broadcasting Network of source material is out there to listen to again or listen to it for the first time. It's a fun meta romp that Wade Wilson has through all sorts of fun literature while Sherlock Holmes is on his tail. So you can check that out. Also upcoming. Oh my goodness. On the 20th of January, unspoken issues. Number 23 hits the air and it is Chris Armstrong and I's discussion about street fighter. Number three, Malibu's Street Fighter number three. All I gotta say is Blanca in reading glasses, looking like my grandma, and also Zangief file drives a bear, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. Trust me. We get in touch with the editor of Malibu's Street Fighter at the time. The guy is listed on the comic, and we get some inside information as to what the heck happened. Why did Malibu decide to cut ties with this company, excuse me, why yes. did yes. Capcom? Did, you, did you ask him why they decided to erroneously list one of their characters as Chan Lu? <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> oh, boy. Did I rip that epilogue a new one? But Capcom cut ties with Malibu, Malibu because of that issue, and we got some insider information as to why. So, I can't um, imagine the reason. <laughs> dude, Chan Lee. Chan Lee. Blanca with a K. All right. Is that, who Unbe- wrestled, is that who wrestled Jeff Harvey at summer at Summerfest? <laughs> Unbeknownst, okay, spelled with a C E at the end. I rest Unbeyon- my case. Unbeyonce. <laughs> I know, dude. It was bad. Anyway, oh, you can check That's that terrible. out. And we got we've got other uh, we got other episodes upcoming for unspoken issues sometime. Me and me and Chris are getting them in the can whenever we have the chance. So uh, you can check that out. But other hey, than that. Before you go, I want everyone to know that if you're missing Jesse Starcher, and I know you are, he isn't so essential that he can't dedicate, dedicate himself to a week of Back to the Future content. February 1st, him and Cole Marantet and I will be looking at the Back to the Future Transformers crossover in yes. comic books. Uh, we're doing a special on trial. It's Jesse of versus Mark. <laughs> it's Jesse versus Mark the rematch. Years and years ago, when Sean was on a hiatus from Long Road to Ruin, I had Jesse come on and we did the Back to the Future trilogy. And I didn't know it at the time, but I didn't realize how big of a Jesse, uh, how big of a Back to the Future stan Jesse Starcher is. So Jesse, when I don't, I, I think it was Jesse, it was don't. Winfrey was on the show with you, and I booed you from afar. Oh, you, okay, yeah. that's right. You gave Back to the Future two a big bunch of crap, so I yeah. had to step in and say, "Listen, jerk." No, wait a second. I didn't put it that way. 
<laughs> you, if you didn't, you should have. <laughs> All right, so I, I, I stand corrected. My, myself and Winfrey did a, a, um, a Back to the Future Long Road to Ruin, at which point I laid into Back to the Future 2 as the shit, as the shit machine that it is. And so Jesse Starcher... Uh, you, sir, are incorrect about that. I said, I said as much then, I say as much now. Good for you. Um, so Jesse Starcher, defending the honor of Back to the Future 2 like a knight in shining armor, will be on on trial to defend Back to the Future 2 against my, uh, my prosecution. Criticism? Prosecution. Okay, right. It's like called it. on Mark. trial. It's a mock trial, see? Prosecution. I have, I have, I have to... I have to warn you, Mark. You understand that in this circumstance, you are... Ah, oh, who's the other guy? You're not Gennady Golovkin. Who is that other fellow we covered and thought beat Canelo? Oh, Jesus Christ. I can't I know remember. I'm not going to have the answer for this. <laughs> uh, was, it, was it Danny Henry? I don't know. I, the point being, you, sir, are trying to step to Canelo. And... We all know how the judges' scorecards work in that case. On the Metal Hammer of Doom that week, we were being looking at the top ten songs of the... What is it? I can't remember what we're doing here. We're, top, we're doing something with the Back <laughs> to the Future week. Find it in there somehow. Yeah, the top ten songs of Back to the Future week. So whatever week that Back to the Future came out in the 80s, we are looking at the top ten songs of that week. So that'll be fun on, on um, Metal Hammer of Doom. <laughs> that is that February... <laughs> that is shut up you that'll be february 3rd and then um saturday a very special episode um we, we don't do these very often but uh we did we we did a reaction show to the kentucky fried movie where robert and i just watched it with the with the cameras off and then we we turned the recorder on and kind of recorded our instant reaction to watching the movie he had never seen it before so that was so it was his capturing his first reaction we haven't done anything like that since. So instead of doing a commentary, we're doing a reaction to the original Back to the Future. But here's the caveat to that. Jesse's going to watch Back to the Future with his family at home. I'm going to watch Back to the Future with my family who won't shut the fuck up and won't listen to the dialogue at home. You can put that on the end of mine, too. Okay. <laughs> That's exactly what's going to happen with my so family. So while Jesse's well. children won't shut the fuck up and, keep pl- and won't stop playing with their phones... And while my children won't shut the fuck up and won't stop playing with their phones, <laughs> we're going to make them watch this movie, and then we're going to send them out of the room, and then we're going to come back, and then we're really not going to talk about the movie. We're just going to complain about our families and how they wouldn't watch the goddamn movie. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Caleb will come away from this going, wait, why is, I, I, I could have sworn there was a Marty McFly costume at one point in Fortnite. Is that where I know this from? Oh, that, perfect. That's, that, that's exactly exactly what it would be dude i can tell you that he went on skate three and created himself a uh, marty mcfly guy with uh with a hoverboard underneath of him so I can, there you I go i can already tell you what my kids reactions to this movie is going to be my daughter's going to complain that there's no female heroes in it my son's going going to identify with biff <laughs> okay hold on i have no problem <laughs> with your son identifying with biff because that surprises me not at all especially the way he ends up waxing the car of another person for money because he's such a loser but Lorraine is not a weak character by any stretch of the imagination. Shame on your daughter for that take prematurely. Okay. Well, you know what? Now that you mention it, that'll probably be her reaction. It's just like, well, I like the Lorraine character, because of course you will. Oh, I like the Lorraine character. Why did she nearly get raped? 
<laughs> yeah. That, oh God, I'm not looking forward to that. Oh, man, it is, you know, there is going to be some awkward stuff that I have to try to explain. Uh, you know, why, why you like suddenly Winfrey's son? very interested in this podcast. I got to hear what happens. I, I might be I might be invested in this now as a listener. I might have to. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we're gonna watch the we're gonna watch the movies with our families, and then Jesse and I are gonna get to. We were originally gonna do like a joint commentary, but it's way too many people talking all at the same time while trying to watch the movie, and it's not gonna work. So it'll just be just after we send everyone to bed, it'll be just Jesse and I talking about our family's reactions to Back to the Future. It'll be an interesting experiment in podcasting for sure, right, Jesse? You know, if we if we had figured out how to use our how to make use of our Patreon account, we could have. We could be sell. We could be recording our you know live reactions and then offering that as Patreon content and then doing the, uh, re- the doing the post reaction as the free stuff. But you know, I would love to yell at my kids while while <laughs> recording. It would be fun. Yeah, d- t- here, here play the rattleage and broadcasting family drinking game. Take a drink every time I yell "shut the fuck up" at one of my kids. <laughs> well, Was it that bad with uh, with Flash Gordon? <laughs> I don't remember it being that bad. Well, no. Well, that when they were allowed to talk over the movie, so they were perfectly well behaved. The only problem oh. was getting them to not talk over each other. Okay, all right. But that, but I mean, I listened back to that. That sounded fine, and you know, they were having a good time with it. Actually, the really funny story about that one was I, I intended to only do it with my daughter because I didn't think my son was interested, and he, I didn't realize this at the time, but like I called Lily to to watch the movie and do the commentary. And I was like, okay, Jonas, we don't need you, though. You can go in your room and play on your phone. <laughs> Not thinking he wanted to be a part of it. And my wife, like, five minutes later, before we started, like, taps him in the shoulder, like, can you please let your son be a part of this? You've really upset him. Like, what the fuck? Hey, you, only told your, you only told your five-year-old, no, son, we don't want you. <laughs> well, that was his interpretation of the events. Sure. Wait, That's not what the intention was. Me. <laughs> go on, kid. You bother me. me. <laughs> go ahead. Right. Go away. I'm uh, thinking. <laughs> no, and then and I was like, no, I didn't think you'd want to do this, but God, come on in, Jonas. And then he yelled nonsense over everything. Um, children, they're, adorable. they're wonderful. <laughs> at which point you had to suppress the urge at several points during the show to go. This is why I didn't want you. On the, show. <laughs> the, the thought was there. Yes. Um, all right. <laughs> this is gone. This is now like twenty minutes of not uh, of not plugs. So, <laughs> all right, Winfrey, do your plugs and let's get the fuck out of here. All right. Uh, since the UFC machine is starting back up, you can find me hosting the four one one Ground and Pound MMA podcast. This last week, we looked back at the year of twenty twenty. Uh, you can find my full written 2020 year-end awards in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. I go over the winners in that show, so if you don't actually care about my efforts, you can just listen to that. If you actually care, click on the click on the link. Uh, I didn't link it. Crap. Go to 411mania.com, MMA Zone. It's one of the only things that's been posted over the last few weeks. It's right there at the top. So you can find out my thoughts on some of the performances and whatnot from the year of 2020. The good, the bad, the otherwise. Uh, happy to have been here. Let's see. Uh, I will have coverage uh, of the UFC's return to action. The U- UFC is on ABC, the American Broadcasting Corporation. This coming Saturday, they'll be starting early in the morning, I think around noon. Uh, they're trying not to conflict with some football game. I forget if it's uh, the kind you care about, professional, or the kind you tolerate, collegiate. 
but one of those two. So you can find uh, you can find my coverage of that in the MMA Zone. That main card for that event, by the way, really good card. Main event of Max Holloway and Calvin Cater. That has just that's a striker's delight right there. Those two are high-level strike-based technicians. Should be a lot of fun. Supporting card for that is very, very solid. You've also got a... Uh, I don't want to reference this fighter because I know Mark's stupid joke before he makes it, but Carlos Condit will fight Matt Brown in oh, a Carlos guaranteed... In a guaranteed good old boys violence fest. And what was the other major one from the main card? Um... Uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio and Li Jing Leong should be really fun. I'll just give you the other three fight, the other two fights here. Joaquin Buckley, holder of the Knockout of the Year for 2020 by unanimous decision across all platforms. Good lord, that kick. We'll fight Alessio DiCirico and Punahele Soriano will fight Dusko Todorovic, which should be a decent enough middleweight fight. Excuse me, sorry. Uh, no, I was correct. I hate when I read that guy's name because the O's and R's get confused when I look at them, but I know it's Todorovic. So that'll be fun. Again, that's a really solid main card, so watch it. Follow along if, if you can't watch it live. Follow along if you are watching it live. Hang out in the comments section. Uh, again, the 411 Ground and Pound show this coming Sunday. Review of that, double preview, because this coming week we have an event on Wednesday, early in the morning, because... Uh, the UFC hates me. And then the big pay-per-view, uh, Conor McGregor returns for a rematch with Dustin Poirier. Uh, not this coming Saturday, but uh, the next one for UFC 257. Seven? Yes, yeah, seven. Uh, Poirier and McGregor should be a lot of fun. That card finally got some value apart from that in the co-main event. Michael Chandler makes his UFC debut against Dan Hooker. Pity it's only three rounds of violence between those two. So that's pretty much where you can find me. I host Damn You Hollywood. We, uh, When there are movies to talk about, we talk about them. So you can find uh, reviews of uh, Soul and Wonder Woman in the archives if you're so interested. And we and have Most some importantly, stuff on January 30th, Rob Winfrey makes his glorious return to boxing coverage on the Rattlers and Broadcasting Network as we will be doing the main event between Caleb Plant and Caleb Truitz. Yes, because there can only be one Caleb. <laughs> the other one will have to start spelling it with a K and be thusly shamed. <laughs> All right, you good? Uh, yeah, again, that's pretty much everything for me right now. Be on the lookout for more uh, updates from the Rattletch and Broadcasting Network because we are hammering out a schedule for Damn You Hollywood since all these production companies and distribution studios are giant girly men and are not releasing anything. Uh, we'll be seeing what we can figure out for movies to talk about going forward. Netflix is having a bunch of releases. We might slot in some uh, older Damn You Hollywoods. You know, we'll pick a, pick a movie from years gone by and talk about it in our glowing in glowing terms or not so glowing terms. But that will be the only way we get to talk about the money for the foreseeable future is when we talk about, hey, 20 years ago, this made so many millions of dollars, and it was great. Hey, remember when Disney had every movie in the all of their movies in the top ten? Those were times. All right. Remember last year when, uh, what, seven of the top ten were over a billion dollars? Yeah. Well, sorry, not last year, 2019. Yeah. 
2020, the lost year in movies. All right, folks, it's been two and a half hours. I'm sure you're sick of us. We're sick of it. We're all just all sick of it all, right, Jesse? Um, <laughs> sick of it all. To all the to all the small children who are who are winding up using this as material to help soothe them to sleep, uh, the world is only going to be as good as you make it unless we all burn it down before you get the chance. Children are the future unless we stop them now. Fuck Fresca. <laughs> well said. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>